0: Bienvenidos and welcome to the Histories of Mexico. Episode 12, Tabasco Part 10. The Banquet of Crimes. You are enjoying the song called Destination Tortuga, a song I found by basically googling epic pirate music and finding the first royalty-free track I liked. Since today, ladies and gentlemen, in an effort to seek forgiveness for the prolonged hiatus I have made you all suffer through, we will finally, at long last, be talking about the pirates. So I figured some appropriate music to set the mood was in order. The island of Tortuga, mentioned in nearly every major pirate franchise or movie, was a real place, famous for its pirate activity. Now, it wasn't exactly part of Mexico, as that would be too perfect, but it would lie in the Caribbean, and thus fits right in when talking about today's main subjects, the pirates who threatened the Caribbean coast and the greater Spanish mainland. Before we jump feet first into these pirate-infested waters, At least one announcement is in order, as I will be releasing another episode shortly on a new supplemental series I am starting in collaboration with a YouTube creator over at Pike Productions, all about the border cities of northern Mexico, which gives us all a wonderful opportunity to visit a different part of the country after spending so long in the Yucatan. Yes, the weather is nice, very nice, but it's good to go out and see new places, and I think you will enjoy the first of the places that we will visit on the list. So stay tuned for that coming within the next few days. Otherwise, I don't have much else to talk about, other than thanking the author of this episode's epic intro and outro song, Antje Martikainen, for the music. A man who has a name fitting for a pirate. But without further ado, let's get into talking about some crime, taxes, and arms. Of course, first, I'll recap. In our last episode, we covered the history of various Spanish conquests throughout the Chontalpa in attempts to subjugate the rebellious Simanteco people who stood as the last signs of defiance in the face of total Spanish domination. But ultimately, the Simantecos were defeated by a mixture of plague and Spanish persistence. These Chontalpa Crusades, having begun in 1524, finally came to a close after 40 years, and the Simantecos were officially declared defeated in 1564, ushering in the age of colonization. Despite a steady trickling of said colonists, clergy, and soldiers into the area, this inland colonization was moving at a relative snail's pace compared to its coastal counterparts. The beginnings of a rivalry between coastal and inland communities began emerging, with the coastal cities feeling far removed from the scary jungles, which were full of increasingly less bloody, thirsty natives, sure, but still deemed incredibly dangerous nonetheless. Meanwhile, the coast was thought to be a much safer location, providing an escape by sea in case things went the way of the failed community of Santiago Simatán, which burned a few months after it was established back in 1546 at the height of the Chontalpa Crusades. Well, in this episode, we will check back in on the international scene by looking back to the year 1557, which will not only make the coastal colonists of Tabasco reconsider their attitudes towards the safety of both coast and inland community, but finally allow me to follow through on a subject I prematurely set up several episodes ago. For 1557 is the first documented raid from foreign privateers known as pirates. That's right, history lovers, we finally get to talk about the pirates of the Mexican Gulf. When discussing these pirates, it's important to understand that different sources wrote about these men in different ways and viewed them accordingly, depending on which side of the crosshairs they fell on. To the English, the French, and the Dutch, for example, the many men who hailed from their countries to prey on Spanish galleys and their precious cargo are referred to as mariners, explorers, scientists, and even opportunistic businessmen. For historians from the victimized Spanish point of view, these same men are described unflatteringly as pirates, often invoking more colorful words such as smugglers, kidnappers, robbers, and murderers, with the same meaning. Now this all has a lot to do with what was going on in Europe during this time, since the conflicts that began there would often be dragged out and realized far removed from the view of the refined European world in the relatively distant Atlantic frontier. For example, between the years of 1551 to 1559, Spain and France, led by Charles V and Francis II, respectively, found themselves in an armed dispute over who would claim the rights to the Italian peninsula and its wealthy territories. This had absolutely nothing to do with the Caribbean or Yucatec worlds, yet it's likely that this conflict prompted French privateers to begin sacking the coastal communities of Veracruz, Tabasco, Campeche, and the Yucatán, to name only those in the Gulf, and not even mentioning the colonies along the Caribbean Islands or Central and South America. This region of the Gulf of Mexico, encompassing Campeche, Tabasco, and Veracruz, along with the coastal regions of Florida and the Caribbean Sea, including the island chains of the Lesser Antilles, comprises the area that scholar Johanna von Graftenstein, along with other authors, have coined the Circun Caribe, or the Greater Caribbean. And it is this region that the pirates who began their incursions in 1557 would come to dominate for the next several decades and even centuries, with some authors arguing their presence would have a lasting effect on the development of society and plague the victim's psyche for generations to come. We will see them pop in and out as we go from here into the future, but they become an ever-present force in this greater Caribbean, and a force we, like the colonists, won't be able to ignore when they come floating into town, demanding all the gold and valuables. So despite having just introduced them, we will have to wait for the pirating to really pick up steam in the 16th century, and particularly in the 1630s, when the golden age of piracy gets into full swing. Regardless, it is documented throughout various of these coastal communities that in 1557 and 1558, Pirate attacks occurred in Veracruz, Cárdenas, Paraíso, Santa María de la Victoria, and San Francisco de Campeche, the unofficial port of the Yucatec capital of Mérida. This would prompt the Spanish to build watchtowers along coastal hills, such as in the municipality of Paraíso, including towers along the Teodomoro and the La Unión hills, established to warn against incoming pirate attacks floating up the Dos Bocas, Chilteapan, and Tutuilpan, deltas, but did very little to actually deter or defend against these incursions, which would only increase in frequency as the years went by. A group of particularly forward-thinking raiders decided to take over the nearby Laguna de Terminos, the same one discovered and named by Hernández de Córdoba and navigator extraordinaire Anton de Alaminos, when they mistakenly believed it to be the end of the island that they had named the Yucatán. This is all going on in Campeche, so we will keep to Tabasco for the time being. But over the next hundred plus years, these pirates will sail over multiple times from the island and incur a heavy price on the distracted administrators, who had allowed said pirates to establish such a strong foothold in the region, whilst distracted quarreling amongst themselves. But what immediate effect did these attacks have on the territory of Tabasco? Well, sometime in June of 1557, the Corsair menace would strike all along the Gulf of Mexico's coastline. This caused predictable confusion and fear among the colonists. And among the chaos, a group of 20 Spanish colonists, several of their native laborers and or slaves, all fled from an attack on Santa Maria de la Victoria and sailed up the Grijalva some 24 leagues to the south to arrive at a place we encountered last episode, known as Tres Lomas, or Three Hills, which at the time only housed a tiny fishing village. The new community would be set up close to the site where, 32 years prior, Cortés had erected a cross in prayer for the last colonists to flee danger from La Victoria. Now, on the 24th of June, 1557, off the banks of the river formerly known as the Tabasco, These 20 or so refugees, fleeing this time from foreign rather than native attacks, would establish the settlement known as San Juan de Bautista de Tabasco, or St. John the Baptist of Tabasco. My theory on why this saint was selected is related to the settlement's proximity to the river, and the fact that by fleeing up the river, they had escaped what they believed to be sure destruction at the hands of the pirates, Meanwhile, the Judean preacher John has a strong association with baptisms, particularly those he reportedly conducted in the Jordan River, further linking him to rivers and providing safety or salvation. So, a possible connection between the Grijalva River and St. John might have been an easy one to make in the minds of the ultra-religious Spanish citizens. But again, this is just my theory. 1557 was not quite done with the colony, however, and in the waning days of the year, on the 25th of December, the territory of Tabasco would pledge fealty to a new king, Philip II. Philip II had gained his Spanish crown after his father, the mighty Charles V, had renounced his title in favor of his son on the 16th of January, 1556, after which Charles began his retirement by traveling to the monastery of Yusta in the province of Extremadura in Spain. Philip was crowned in 1557, and on September 21, 1558, Charles retired from life completely after 58 long and fruitful years. He would leave Spain in the hands of his capable, yet perhaps a little religiously zealous, son, poised for nothing but success and on the cusp of becoming one of the richest nations in history. A year after Philip's coronation in October of 1558, Dr. Diogenes López Reyes claims that the English corsairs now came to congratulate the colonists on welcoming their new king, and joined the French in the Laguna de Terminos, sharing their little base on the island of Tris, to get a better angle from which to send their many congratulations, of course. From here, they launched a renewed set of attacks on La Victoria and Campeche, even navigating the many rivers to reach further inland, and discovering the usage of cacao and how to make chocolate a secret that the Spanish merchants had been jealously guarding this entire time in order to control the markets back in Europe. This series of attacks coincides with the elevation of hostilities between England and Spain, most notably in the rivalry between Queen Elizabeth I and Philip II, including a brief marriage proposal that was being floated around during Elizabeth's early years on the throne, a proposal made slightly icky given Philip's previous spouses and their relations to Elizabeth. More on that in a bit. This rivalry between Philip and Elizabeth was nothing new, nor was it the only vehicle driving Spain and England towards war. Simultaneously, the rivalry between Spain and France was beginning to cool down during this time in the late 16th century, having been most fractious due to the disagreeability of Charles V and Francis II. But now there was a new ruler in Spain, and two years later, Francis II would die, and likely followed his bitter rival into the afterlife, only to quarrel for all of eternity. This left his son Charles IX to inherit his throne in France, and Charles IX was a red-blooded Catholic monarch through and through, exactly like Philip II. Having watched their fathers beating each other to a bloody pulp, and sharing much more in common than their relative fathers had, the two new leaders appear to have lost all the energy that their predecessors displayed in keeping up the fight instead opting to settle their differences for the time being and both preferring to set their sights on new, more heretical targets. So, what does this have to do with England and Mexico? Well, here's where things begin to get a bit religious, as the self-proclaimed theological genius Philip II would petition the Pope and ordered his lands in the Spanish Netherlands face the wrath of the Inquisition, a move which played a large part in sparking the explosion of hostilities in 1562 that would be known as the French Wars of Religion, which themselves were just another in a string of conflicts which fell under the umbrella of altercations known as the Eighty Years' War. Despite its dramatic name, it was not an 80-year-long continuous war, but rather a series of revolts, battles, skirmishes, and all-around loss of life due to the seemingly simple but potentially deadly question of faith. This totally reasonable and logical issue over religion would leave the Catholic monoliths, Spain and France, as tentative allies against the Protestant forces of Europe, most notably the Dutch and the English. And I'll give you one guess as to who picked up where the French pirates left off on sacking and plundering all of those wealthy Spanish colonies in the Americas. That's right, the English and the Dutch. For the next 80-odd years, it would be the official foreign policy of both countries to attack and pillage anything that was written in Spanish found floating along the sea, all with the ultimate goal of weakening the Catholic war effort back in Europe. Queen Elizabeth I would famously send Sir Francis Drake, the memorable circumnavigator of the world, among other privateers who would find considerable success in sacking the various colonies of the greater Caribbean. His adventures are still a bit ways off, along with many of the other famous pirates of the day, such as the Dutch menace Lorencillo, a man simply named Pegleg, Henry Morgan of the Captain Morgan Rum fame, and a man we will cover in today's episode, Christopher Newport, the one-armed pirate. All men who will come to terrorize these coasts we have been talking about mostly in the 17th century. Missouri State researcher Victor Alfonso Medina Lujo wrote a fascinating article that delves deeply into the history of these pirates and their impact on the Mexican society along the Gulf Coast. He puts the periodization of their attacks best in his paper when he wrote the following and here he is specifically talking about the city of Campeche. Quote, historians defined and periodized these stages based on the attacker's origin and the number of forces used to attack the town. The first stage, 1557-1597, to 1597, began in 1557, the year of the first recorded pirate aggression by French corsairs, until 1597, when English privateers under the command of Captain William Parker tried to capture the entire town of Campeche. The second stage, 1597-1633, to 1633, began after the 1597 English attempted invasion and lasted until the arrival of the Dutch in the town of 1633. When the number of aggressions against the villa briefly decreased, that villa being Campeche. Historians distinguished a third stage, characterized by a great increase in the historical record of pirate attacks. This third stage began in 1633 with the first successful capture of Campeche by Cornelius Jol, Pie de Palo, or in English, Leg of Wood, aka Peg Leg, and lasted until 1685 when the Lons de Graff assault occurred. In this third stage, unlike the first one, the attacks became more constant, larger, and better organized, with new actors on stage the Dutch privateers, pirates, and later buccaneers. There will be ample time in the future to get into the distinctions between pirates, buccaneers, corsairs, and other colorful descriptors for these entrepreneurially minded, independent contractors of the sea, as well as the different time periods of their raids. I will be relying heavily on Victor Medina's paper when we get to these topics, particularly as they pertain to Campeche and the Yucatan, since those are his main areas of focus. But it is a fascinating read I highly suggest if you are interested at all on the topics of these greater Caribbean pirates. I'll be sure to include a link to the paper either in the comments or in the supplemental pages, which I know, I know, I need to get working on. Sorry for even bringing it up. But while we weighed further aggression from the Pirates after their initial thrusts in 57 and 58, we can pick up our story where we left it off last episode, with 1560 seeing the political authority over the territories of Tabasco, the Yucatan, and Campeche all placed back under the jurisdiction of the Audiencia de Mexico, thanks to the considerable efforts of the Franciscan religious order, the new top dogs in town. Then, in 1561, The religious authority in Tabasco was placed under that of the Bishop of Yucatan, who would from this moment on appoint a vicar in Tabasco that he would control from his cathedral in Mérida, and do so at the Bishop of Yucatan's considerable discretion. This meant that Tabasco was beholden to Mérida both politically and spiritually, which wouldn't be a problem when the two administrations were able to work together. But of course, a time would come where the ambitions and egos of the men leading these colonies would inevitably clash, resulting in some questionable accusations and truly petty behavior, all while the pirate threats mounted along the coastlines. 1561 also saw the installment of the Alcalde Mayor, Alonso Gomez de Sotomayor, in Tabasco, who we met last episode and was in charge of the territory when three super important things occurred. The first was the focus of the entire last episode, that being the official declaration of the pacification of the Chontalpa and the Simanteco threat, the end of the Chontalpa Crusades. The second and third things will concern our episode this time around, as they include the further entrenchment of religion in the form of religious communities being established around missionary efforts such as the Franciscan establishment of the Convent de Santo Domingo de Guzmán in Oxolotán with the third thing being the misadventures of a certain royal corregidor, Dr. Diego de Quijeda. Let's start with the convent of Oxolotán, which would not be completed until 1633, so we may have to wait a bit before we fully appreciate its physical presence. Nevertheless, we will see these sort of religiously founded communities pop up all around the newly pacified land, And these religious establishments will not only provide an economic engine for the war-torn regions to attain some semblance of economic stability, but also offer a new spiritual tool for psychological stability to the local inhabitants after the years of disease and conquest had decimated their native populations and undoubtedly shaken their native religious convictions. Pretty soon, these religious orders would attempt to heal the psychological scars and trauma left over from decades of conquest, disease, and death, now including an increasing anxiety due to the constant threat of pirate attacks plaguing communities living within striking distance of the water's edge, which at the time was the majority of the population. The new priests and bishops did their level best to keep their new flocks hopeful, which is how we see an explosion of building projects and festivals begin to emerge during this time, all in efforts to give the traumatized natives something to be excited about and live for. It seems also likely that this is when a large number of religious blendings begin, as the native Mexicans never stopped infusing their culture back into the religion being pressed upon them, And the priests realized they got more out of their congregation if the processes were familiar, so the blending would begin as a compromise between the two sides. But let's leave Oxolotán and those religious communities to establish themselves while we look to Tabasco in 1564, the year when the perhaps honorable, perhaps corrupt, Corregidor of the Yucatán, Campeche, and Tabasco, Dr. Diego de Quijeda, arrives to take up his assigned post. Corregidores were directly appointed by the royal court and king and served essentially as governors of the territory they were assigned to, beholden only to said court and king and local audiencia. This particular corregidor would be the first man to govern the Yucatán directly appointed by said king, so we will see how well Philip II's appointment fares. But who was this corregidor Quijeda and why, according to Dr. Diogenes López-Reyes, would he soon be accused of committing over 100 crimes. Dr. Diego de Quijeda was born in Carmona, Spain in 1516 and rose through the academic ranks to become a well-educated Spanish politician. Charismatic, intelligent, and considerably ambitious, Quijeda must have appeared the perfect candidate for the king's little power play, and on the 19th of February, 1560, he was named Royal Corregidor, the title that meant he was a representative directly sent by the king and assigned the monumental task of taking over what was essentially the role of governor of Yucatán, Campeche, and Tabasco. Up to this point, the alcalde mayores and governors of the Yucatán had been selected by either the Mexican or Guatemalan Audencias, which, if we remember the Montejos, was often in league with the very same leaders of Mérida, Tabasco, and Veracruz. But Philip II appears to me, at least, to be attempting to flex some of his own political muscle and appoint his own man, and had things in Europe not distracted him, perhaps Philip would have done more to protect the man he sent into the frying pan. And Quijeda set off immediately to hurriedly prepare for his new and important assignment. And when I say he set off immediately to hurriedly prepare, what I meant to say was he spent the next couple of years making his preparations to leave, and it remains unclear why he took so long to take up his important post. It's possible that things had to be prepared in the Yucatan for his arrival. Maybe his accommodations were not to his liking. Perhaps it took a while to secure passage for him, his family, and all of their possessions. Or he had a lot of things to pack. The speculations can run the gamut. But I suspect it has something to do with the encomenderos, business leaders, and local regidores, a.k.a. city council members of Mérida, starting to raise a particular stink over the fact that they were being handed a leader by the inexperienced and overbearing young king. They would much rather buy one for themselves. Uh, Did I say buy? Of course I meant elect. They were mad that they couldn't elect a new leader for themselves. I can't imagine why I would make that mistake. Silly me. Feel free to send your theories as to why he was delayed so long to the email, thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. But regardless of the reason, he is not recorded to have arrived in Mexico until the 10th of January, 1562, nearly two years after his initial announcement and appointment. I mean, talk about premature. But in all honesty, I could just be miscalculating the amount of time it takes to prepare all of your things and make the trip across the sea. So perhaps Quijeda didn't take so long. I will have to do some research and get back to you all on that front. Soon after arriving, Dr. Quijeda got right on the task of confirming all the suspicions from Merida's ruling elites that this guy would spell trouble for their interests and exploitative goals. He began by establishing encomiendas for Indians on vacant lands and prioritized said land redistribution to conquerors who had withheld or never managed to acquire Indian laborers sending a clear message that he was not on board with the slaveries. Next, he brought about an order to assess the taxes paid by the Indians and encomenderos to ensure that they were being charged fairly, which, surprise, surprise, the Indians weren't. But the real coup de grace for Merida's trust in Quijeda was his introduction and enforcement of the road policy, essentially a project to expand the footpaths once used by the Mayan natives to connect the far-flung jungle communities and built them up into a proper road system, enabling it to transport goods via cart and animal rather than via Indian backs, as had been the norm. Each and every one of these changes would come at the considerable expense of the American encomenderos, who had previously been enjoying the fruits of said free laborers, and had been perfectly happy with the way things were. Thank you very much. And before I go on, I have to give a shout out to listener Jeff who pointed out in his wonderful email responding to my question last episode about why traveling by hammock was outlawed in Tabasco during the Chontalpa Crusades. Jeff's truly inspired answer was that traveling by hammock likely meant native workers were literally hand-carrying rich elites as they lounged in their fancy hammocks getting carried through the sweltering Tabascan heat. So it seems Tabasco was ahead of Merida in this regard of treating the natives more fairly. All in all, a massive thanks to Jeff for emailing and sharing his thoughts, as I believe he is spot on with his theory. So thanks, Jeff, and thanks for the email. Despite Quijeda's charisma, these landowners looked at one another and asked themselves who this royal stooge thought he was, coming to their peninsula, not only ordering them around, but cutting into their considerable profits and businesses. Remember these sentiments, as they might help explain what happened next. Quijeda went past threatening to step on toes to practically grinding every well-established foot in the vicinity right into the floor when he opened the first highway between Mérida and Cisal, After emphasizing the need to activate a port in order to strengthen ties with Spain and Mexico City, he proposed the port city of San Francisco de Campeche as a suitable candidate. And despite the pirate menace right around the corner at the Laguna de Terminos and the island of Tris, the city would quickly expand into one of the most important coastal ports on the Gulf of Mexico, vitally important to the growing jungle metropolis of Merida, which would utilize the port to stay connected with the wider Atlantic Ocean trade networks. But if all this went down in Yucatán, why are we talking about Quijeda in a Tabasco series? Well, two years after he arrived and assumed the role of governor, Quijeda would make his first tour of Tabasco, as was his corregidor mandate to inspect all the territories under his command. And he landed in Santa Maria de la Victoria on the 31st of January, 1564. If you remember last episode, Corregidores were royally appointed officials who operated as governors for large swaths of territory, much like the Yucatán was at this moment. While Alcaldes Mayores operated as governors for smaller provinces within said governorships, such as Tabasco. So when Corregidor Quijeda arrived in La Victoria to assume his governorship, he was greeted by his top lieutenant in the province, the Alcalde Mayor, Alonso Gomez Sotomayor, who was trying his hardest to rebuild and improve the territory after the repeated visits by the pirate attacks. Quijeda first got a financial report from the royal Treasurer, then sent Sotomayor to handle the issues of a dispute between the towns of Simatán and Cunduacán, whose rivalry appears to have begun to break out into violence after so many years of Mayor Trujeque's considerable efforts to stabilize the region during the Chontalpa Crusades. This would be the last push for freedom, and Dr. Diogenes conveys that Sotomayor took various families from the two cities and sternly insisted, at gunpoint, that they relocate to the nearby town of Cucultiupa, which was struggling to repopulate after the devastations of war and disease had dwindled their population down to nearly nothing. There, they would be told to live together peacefully, or else. Quijeda would personally visit the new community to help rebuild farmlands and churches, including 23 lovely houses with ample room to build new families. Quijeda finally ensured that the new peaceful inhabitants of Cucultiupa, received provisions while the fields came to be harvested, and the villagers appear to have appreciated this new lease on life, presenting Quijeda and the Spanish with many idols, masks, flint knives, sorcerer's clothing, and other items of diplomatic or religious importance. Quijeda honored these offerings the only way the Spanish knew how, by publicly destroying them in front of the new church and square to erase all traces of pagan idolization. To cauterize this religious amputation, Quijeda brought in a preacher straight from the other religious center outside of the Franciscan stronghold in Mérida, the Dominican-run highlands of Chiapas. And so down came Rodrigo Lopez to preach, baptize, bring communion and confession, and instruct the excited new Catholics in the religious rituals and stories of their fun new religion. This is just one example of the many assimilations happening around colonial Mexico and after securing the peace of Cucultiupa, Simatán, and Cunduacán, the Honorable Quijeda would return to La Victoria to discover another mission requiring his considerable attention. See, Quijeda was acutely aware of the recent pirate infestation that had broken out along the coastal communities of the Gulf, and part of his tour of Tabasco included an accounting of all the damage caused by the irksome sea brigands. While in the capital, Quijeda was told the story of a group who had fled up the Grijalva during the first assault on La Victoria of 1557 and settled in the interior of the province at a river confluence known as Tres Lomas, or Three Hills, in a community going by the name of San Juan Bautista de Tabasco. Quijeda appears impressed with the tenacity of these survivors in the face of unexpected danger and chose to help them by drawing up plots of land, then granting the titles and deeds to these new plots directly to the tenacious colonists. The way the village sat on the plains between the three hills with the Grijalva River prominently flowing through its heart reminded the Corregidor of his Carmona hometown back in Spain, the way its fertile plains surrounded a city with flowing river through its center. Because of this similarity, Quijeda would rename the town Villa Carmona, later describing to King Philip II in a report the process he went through to establish the town and his mindset. Quote, During the time that I was there in Tabasco, I met some married and single Spaniards who were homeless with wives and children on their backs and lived among the natives with their poverty. I ordered them to be gathered up and placed in a very good settlement, that is 20 leagues from Santa Maria de la Victoria, on the Grijalva River itself. And there I traced the towns and gave plots and titles of ranches and lands. They had reached up to a dozen neighbors who humbled themselves to dig and plow and sustain themselves from it. The service that I understand to have done to your majesty is not small. I named the town the Villa de Carmona because it reminds me of the Carmona fertile Plain on the Guadalquivir River. I also drew the Plaza Mayor on a hill that I named Eminence, from where you can see the river very well. End quote. This is the same Plaza Mayor that still stands in the capital to this day, and indeed it does overlook the Grijalba in a magnificent and awe-inspiring way. Quijeda also described the surrounding resources to his powerful patron, and his analysis regarding the future of the Villa Carmona's lucky new villagers. There is a lot of hunting of deer and rabbits and large ducks and a lot of fish and good water and lots of firewood. I understand that this town will increase day by day and that the province will remain for it. They have begun to bring calves and other livestock up the river and will begin to make formed ranches. I will notify your majesty of what happens in this business and I will also notify my lieutenant, Alonso Gomez de Sotomayor, to keep those who reside there in high spirits and, on behalf of your majesty, promise them great favors and mercies so that they do not become depopulated. Quote. It seems Quijeda was intimately concerned with the struggles the Tabascan colonizers were facing and worried that the entire territory might just be abandoned if something wasn't done by the crown to incentivize their efforts of survival. Now, the crown definitely wasn't okay with English ships seizing their cargo and burning their towns, but there was precious little they could do from such a long distance away. By personally showing up, moving the capital, establishing new communities, and ordering the alcalde ordinario to become more involved, Quijeda was attempting to bring the royal hand as close as it could to caressing the brow of the overworked colonists in Tabasco. And I do love the way Quijeda just casually informed the king about that proverbial blank check he told Sotomayor to offer the desperate residents of the Villa Carmona to keep them from depopulating the settlement. I can only imagine Philip's face as he read those letters and imagine the colonists asking for royal titles or something annoying to royalty like that. Perhaps the first crack in the trust between king and royal agent. We shall see. But Quijeda was far from done with his request to Philip, quite the opposite. Quijeda had plans, big plans. And in light of the fact that sugar was doing very well as a cash crop in Tabasco, he concluded that a total of six sugar mills were required to fill production demand, and that it would take 400 black slaves to work since the indigenous population was significantly reduced, 3,000 total left by his account not nearly enough, in his opinion, to run a successful sugar operation. Quijeda continues to show his sensitivity to the natives. I understand that in four years, the slaves that would work in these mills would be worthless, but your majesty, 50,000 pesos of income, is worth more obtained in this way than all the mines in the world, because this is the fruit that the earth has to give, and gold and silver can go missing any day. Not a bad argument, you know, if you remove the glaring omissions to human rights. So much for that whole against-slavery prize we were preparing to gift Quijeda, who seems to have disapproved of enslaving the natives, but slaves from Africa seem to be okay. So it's business as usual in the history of colonialism. One could argue that by 1500s standards, Quijeda wasn't necessarily evil, but simply a product of his time, trying to do right by his boss. But whatever excuse you want to give for his terrible beliefs, Corregidor Quijeda would next attempt to have his say in the power politics of the region and proposed a new bishopric stationed in Tabasco that would include Coatzacoalcos and all of Veracruz, based at La Victoria. And wouldn't you know it, the ambitious acting governor even had the perfect man already in mind, a man by the name of Domingo de Tineo. Don't bother remembering his name though, he won't be around for very long. But what is important to consider is his religious order since Quijeda's nomination was a Dominican friar. This proposal effectively added the powerful Franciscan clergy of Merida to his rapidly growing list of enemies among the upper echelons of power within the governorship of the Yucatan. So what was Quijeda playing at here? It seems to me as though Quijeda. Having first arrived at Mérida and having personally met the Franciscan bishop and his entourage running the show in the Yucatan, he was attempting to balance the religious powers of the peninsula and establish La Victoria as a direct equal and perhaps even potential rival to Mérida, simultaneously weakening the Franciscan order's grip over the region. Domingo de Tineo was a fabulous choice who had worked as the prior of the Monastery of Chapas and had preached and lived in Deapa for several years, so he knew the Tabascan land and people well. Dineo likely would have made a fine bishop, had a vicious winter storm on December 17, 1564, not smashed his boat against the rocks and killed him, along with 42 other unfortunate souls, while traveling between Campeche and La Victoria. Among those 43 lost lives was Alonso de Maldonado, the once president of the Audiencia de los Confines, and thanks to his marriage to Doña Catalina de Montejo, was now also the son-in-law to the adelantado de Yucatán, Francisco de Montejo the Elder. The sea ultimately ended Quijeda's plans, and perhaps he had messed with powers that he did not understand by seeking to upset the religious status quo. But more likely this was just a terrible tragedy that also meant Tabasco would remain an ecclesiastical province under the umbrella of Mérida and therefore Franciscan, control. Dominican incursions would be attempted along the south through the borders with Chiapas, but ultimately the Franciscan orders would hold sway for several decades, significant to our podcast due to the order's propensity for burning indigenous idols, artwork, and religious texts. So to someone like me who cherishes ancient texts and their importance to humanity, they get a big fat F in my gradebook for failure to respect cultural expressions. One of the last things of note to occur during Quijeda's short time in the New World was the discovery of the dyeing properties of the Campechean trees and dyewood woods that grew abundantly across the Yucatán, Campeche, and Tabasco by one Marcos de Angulo, a resident of Valladolid in Yucatán. He had taken his discovery to Quijeda, who immediately saw the economic potential, and granted Angulo a 10-year concession to exploit the region for everything it had. This industry will pop back up again as it will overtake the sugar production Quijeda had initially envisioned. But ultimately, it would be the agave and its versatile fibers that put the Yucatan on the agricultural map. But those plantations were still several decades off from further entrenching the local population into the system of exploitation engaged in by the European industries that stepped in to make money in the freshly pacified lands of the colonial Nueva España. Unfortunately for Diego de Quijeda, he would not be there to see any of it. On the 13th of November, 1565, Dr. Quijeda was forced to deliver his gubernatorial mandate over Yucatán, Campeche, and Tabasco to his successor, Don Luis de Céspedes y Oviedo, who had been elected in June of the previous year by the staunchly anti-Quijeda faction controlling the Cabildo de Mérida. The fact that this election happened while Quijeda was out of the city and in Tabasco should not be lost on any of you. This was a deliberate response to the perceived breach of rights the encomenderos felt at the hands of this presumptuous royal stooge. But this removal of power was just the first step in the long process of payback, for as soon as he was a regular citizen again. He was served lawsuit after lawsuit, filed against him by countless neighbors and encomenderos from across the many towns and villages of the Merida province. Almost all the sources I have read on the matter agree that they were generally pretty upset with just about everything Quijeda did. But all of them make particular mention that the outlawing of native labor for the transportation of goods and people had forced the encomenderos to pay for separate freighting and transportation fees, which, you know, ugh but had also cut into their considerable profit margins, which is just crossing the line. In order to get back at the architect of their financial misery and woes, the Spanish citizenry of the Yucatan banded together and all in all delivered 106 separate charges against Quijeda, Many of them filed almost as soon as he had left for La Victoria. Sneaky, sneaky. The conspirators boldly masked their actions by dubiously claiming that they were doing what was best for the crown, its royal interests, and its royal subjects. Why were these dubious claims? Well, this did not seem to benefit Philip II in any direct way. The royal interest was maintaining peace and stability among the recently pacified populations, and now that population was watching the one man who guaranteed them anything resembling rights stand trial for cutting them a break. Dubious claims, indeed. Despite the frivolity of the charges, the new, locally elected governor, Céspedes y Oviedo, proceeded energetically with the trial against the many crimes of Quijeda, as was spelled out by his gubernatorial mandate to be the head judge in civil matters. And here we see the cleverness of the angry citizens, who waited until Quijeda was no longer the acting governor, which would have kicked this trial up to the local Audencia to handle, and instead charged him when he was just another citizen, making the new alcalde mayor, making the new governor, meaning the new governor, Luis de Céspedes y Oviedo, could theoretically handle everything right in the comfort of their own backyard. Many of these charges and suits simply fell under the category of abusing the natives of the region. But out of all 106 charges filed, 19 would pertain directly to activities occurring in Tabasco. So I'll quickly run through some of them to offer a sample of the banquet of crimes this vile man committed in a single term in office. The crimes Dr. Diego Quijeda is accused of in Tabasco, according to Dr. Diogenes, number around 19 specifically named ones. They all fall under the few umbrella categories, so I won't go through each one, but I will include a list on the website, thehistoriesofmexico.com, and the supplemental pages, which, yes, I will be getting on. So do go check them out if you want to read each one in its entirety. The accusations range from the usual mismanagement of money and property, such as borrowing money without giving it back, or not delivering money to its rightful owners, with my favorite of these charges being charge number five, quote, under the pretext that he was under orders from the Dominican friar Domingo de Tineo, he took the casiasgo of Tecomagiaca from its owner, the cacique Don Francisco, to gift to another man, end quote. This accusation would, of course, come after Tineo was killed in a shipwreck, so it would be impossible to receive his direct testimony. And the Don Francisco mentioned in the suit was a baptized indigenous caquique, who was gifted the Teapan settlement of Tecomagiaca by the Alcalde Mayor Sotomayor as a reward for peacefully converting. So this charge blends in with the various mistreatments of the locals he was also accused of. The most ridiculous of his abuses to the natives was charge 16, quote, that he took Yucatec natives into Tabasco, who later died from illnesses due to a change in climate, end quote. A rather silly charge if you know anything about the climates of the Yucatan and Tabasco and know that they are practically identical. Meanwhile, the outbreaks of deadly diseases among the native populations are the more likely culprits, but perhaps we can forgive these 16th century humans for the wide gaps in their scientific knowledge given the time period. Of course, bribery and gambling were sprinkled in there, a reliable accusation for disgruntled colonial elites looking to pile on a few more charges for their smear campaigns, In Charge 17, Dr. Diogenes specifies that Quijeda was charged with the successful bribery of a horse to rule in a man's favor. So, you know, at least the man had standards. However, these lofty standards did not mean Quijeda was above banishing widows or forcing them to marry. Oh, no. And he was accused of forcing these crimes, usually under threats of lashings, in order to weasel his way into obtaining their properties and or wealth which he accomplished by either directly assuming ownership himself or by gifting it to someone who was personally connected to him in some way, ultimately profiting from the totally legal resulting acquisition. He would also be accused of bending the legal code to his benefit in charge number two, where he supposedly acquitted a man who stood accused of shooting two men, killing one and wounding the other. Quijeda apparently acquitted the man out of fear that he would be killed next, And this one at least stands up to the scrutiny of self-preservation. So I propose we give the corregidor a pass on this count. Finally, my personal favorite charge, 12. Quijeda would be accused of what, in my opinion, appears to be a pretty petty crime. Quote, that he kept 20 tostones, which he later blamed on Diego Sánchez Moreno, fining him for the crime, end quote. The sheer pettiness of this accusation and the crime itself is why it stands as my favorite. Not only are 20 tostones equivalent to a whopping $2 in modern currency by my crude approximations, but just the idea of Quijeda finding some poor sap to pin this egregious crime of essentially stealing change out of the tip jar and then further charging said innocent sap for the false crime sounds so cartoonishly evil that it rarely fails to give me a chuckle. It's all just so scrumptiously petty, and given the accuser's disagreements with the defendant, all likely made up. I'll round out this course of crimes out of the many we will feast on throughout this episode by reading three more charges that highlight the range of accusations Quijera was facing. Starting with charge 8, he forced Catalina de Solorzano, widow of Diego Vázquez de de Rivadeneira, to marry García de Avendañano a crony of the Bishop of Chiapas, Tomás Casillas, who received the deceased man's properties. Charge 10, that he insulted and mistreated the sons of Tabascan conquistadors, Juan Riz, Cristóbal Pérez de Prudencia, and Melcor de Heredia, who had all come to request certain favors and privileges given their father's contributions. And charge 13, He hired many indigenous people from Tabasco to destroy an old coup or temple to build a religious hermitage in its place. However, after several weeks of work, he not only lost total interest in the project, but refused to pay the workers for their completed work and abandoned the project altogether. All these charges represented the many different crimes he may or may not have been up to. And as a quick reminder, you can read the entire list on the website thehistoriesofmexico.com and the supplemental pages, which if there are any you wish to suggest or request, then email thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com for any questions or suggestions. The trial must have been an absolute sensation in Mérida, but given the 106 charges that needed to be read, Dozens of witnesses that had to be questioned, hundreds of pieces of relevant evidence to be considered, and Quijeda's University of Salamanca-educated defense to contend with. All these very tedious legal shenanigans took absolute ages to produce a final verdict. Now, it was dubious at best if the court could even charge him as a corregidor appointed by the king. But Philip II appears to either have been too busy with matters in Europe to bust his man out of jail or lost faith in his far, far away agent, who had maybe overstepped his boundaries. If you ask me, my money is on the events on the continent distracting the crown. But regardless, the ex-governor dismissed many of the clearly exaggerated charges away during his trial, such as the various forced marriages or banishings, explaining the facts as he saw them with typical Quijeda charisma and flair. But the result had clearly been decided before Quijeda had ever set foot in a courtroom, a fact we would come seeing a fact we could come see a fact we could see coming from a mile away, since the same men who had an axe to grind with Quijera had voted in the new governor Luis de Cespedes y Oviedo, aka head judge of the government, to now sit and judge the very man they wanted out. Perhaps a slight conflict of interest that surely was just a solitary wrinkle in the infallible tapestry of justice that was the Spanish colonial judicial system. The verdict came down in early 1568 and proved as inflexible as it was harsh. The once energetic corregidor of the Yucatán, Campeche, and Tabasco was sentenced to prison and handed a totally reasonable 20,000 peso bail, which Quijeda failed to produce, resulting in his immediate arrest. He was to be held until his transport could be secured to return him to Spain. Spain and the now regular citizen Dr. Quijeda sat in a humid Merida jail cell for his many, many crimes and probably wondered how it had all gone so wrong after just 11 short months. But Quijeda proved as wily as ever and somehow managed to escape from prison some years after his initial incarceration. And I wish I could tell you exactly how he did this, but there isn't a source I could find that relays anything related to those events. Perhaps in the future I'll find some obscure document that mentions something, but it also does seem likely that the Yucatec authorities didn't document their failure to hold one very hated man too thoroughly. But one way or another, Quijeda pulled a Shawshank Redemption and smuggled himself right out of Merida, popping back up in Mexico City, and arranging to appear before the Royal Audiencia of Mexico to plead his case in a proper court where someone of his considerable status could get a fair shake. The Audencia released him from prison time and confirmed the transfer of his case from Mérida to Spain, where he arrived at the end of 1568. Although Quijeda had physically wriggled out of his enemies' clutches, they were still entitled to their day in court, and despite another passionate defense on his part, the trial would end conclusively and bitterly for the ex-governor. The once esteemed administrator was cleared of his prison time in December of 1569, But the following April of 1570, he was ordered to pay his fines, which by this point exceeded 20,000 pesos. But poor Quijeda had long ago spent most of his meager savings as governor, defending himself, then purchasing transportation to Mexico City and later Spain, and he would struggle the rest of his life to pay off his sizable debts, but he would be free. However, the trial seems to have broken his spirit, and he would not enjoy freedom for very long. And I think we can all agree that freedom, while in debt, is hardly freedom at all. He died of asthma at the age of 55 near the end of 1571, by now very poor and destitute in his beloved hometown of Carmona, the city that inspired one of the names of Villa Hermosa, a sad and quiet end to another interesting figure that brushed past the history of Tabasco. Now that Quijeda was gone, his unflattering end and removal from office meant many of his proposals and decrees would be immediately and unceremoniously reversed, or flat-out ignored, once his replacement took office in 1565, and one of those proposals ignored was the transfer of capitals from La Victoria to the newly named Villa de Carmona, Quijeda's intention all along. His political falling out meant that this move failed to be taken into consideration and it would take over 30 years before another leader of Tabasco warning about the vulnerabilities of La Victoria would be taken seriously by his superiors. And Quijeda's proposal to move to the more defensible location further up the Grijalva River would be resurrected, by which point the problem would be right at Tabasco's doorstep. A big reason for this neglect is the same reason it has always been up to this point. Tabasco just was not high up on the priority list for the guys with the big picture positions, like corregidores, governors, or alcaldes mayores. Even Quijeda, whose rule seems to indicate a genuine concern for the natives and colonists, took two years to visit the territory, so not exactly the first destination the mind goes to when thinking about the Gulf. The Spanish, it seemed, were more preoccupied with securing the jungles of the Yucatan, the plains of northern Mexico, and the jungles of Central and South America. This little territory at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico did not concern them very much, and La Victoria diminished in importance as San Juan de Ulua, a.k.a. Coatzacoalcos, to the west, and San Francisco de Campeche, to the east, rose as the preeminent ports for the growing economic capitals of Mexico City and Mérida, respectively. But with Quijeda completely out of the picture, Don Luis de Céspedes y Oviedo, the man elected by the Cabildo of Mérida for the sole purpose of ousting Quijeda, would also be replaced as governor in the spring of 1571 by one Diego de Santillán. Shortly after taking office, the governor Santillán received a letter from the Alcalde Ordinario de la Victoria, Mayor Juan de Villafranca, concerning the whereabouts of four ships from the Spanish Silver Fleet sent by Cadiz that had been shipwrecked in the sandbars near Chiltepec the previous year. The recovery of this wreckage and its cargo had been high on Santillán's list of priorities handed to him by his superiors in Spain, and he immediately set off to personally oversee the recovery effort. Santillán successfully recovered the cargo and even found time while residing in La Victoria to charge and convict the royal treasurer of the city, Antonio de Tolosa, for embezzlement. After this knocking of heads, Santillán issued a few administrative decrees, spent 30 days making sure everything was in order, then returned to Mérida, whereupon he married the lady Beatriz de Montejo, daughter of previous star of the show Francisco de Montejo the Younger, and recent widow to her own uncle Francisco de Montejo the Nephew. While on the subject of Elmoso's children, we can now flush out the rest of the family tree, which highlights the Montejo family's high profiles in the colony by this point. As his son Juan de Montejo married the lady Isabel de Acevedo, who just so happened to be the sister-in-law of the once important Corregidor Quijeda, while Elmoso's youngest daughter, Francisca, married one Don Carlos Ramirez de Arellano, cousin to the legendary Cortés. Santillán stays governing Mérida until September 1573, when he resigned his position and returned to Spain with his wife and growing family to live out the rest of his days in relative peace. And this peace extended to Tabasco for the next few years, until 1575, when the new Franciscan bishop of Yucatán, Fray Diego de Landa, made his pastoral visit to Tabasco. And Landa is remembered fondly for his implementation of torture to obtain confessions of paganism and heresy, and infamous for his controversial destruction of countless native artifacts and religious texts during these religious cleansings of the Americas. But what religious cleansings am I talking about here? Well, Landa had just helped organize and attend the third Mexican Ecclesiastical Council in Mexico City four years earlier, in 1571, and this council established the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition in Nueva España. That's right, not even you, dear listener, expected the Spanish Inquisition in Mexico. Well, it had at long last arrived in Nueva España in full force, and on February 28th, In 1574, Mexico City held its first official auto de fe, or act of faith, the last step in the inquisitorial process that guaranteed a grim spectacle of public torture and eventual execution of the unlucky condemned. Diego de Landa would then help export this deadly ceremony to the rest of the Americas by personally traveling with its blueprint to the Chontalpa and Sierra regions of Tabasco, and according to a letter he sent from Jalpa to King Philip on December twentieth, 1575, he reportedly found an alarming number of sorcerers and magicians who frightened him something fierce. He severely punished said men of magic and anyone else who helped them in any way, or had refused to receive baptism. By this point, a large portion of the native people left standing after the waves of conquest and disease had adopted the Catholic faith, thanks to efforts like those occurring in missionary communities such as Oxolotan, and the religion was well on its way into evolving into the fascinating blends of beliefs and customs we see today. Bishop Landa proceeded with these trials throughout the highlands of La Sierra and jungles of Chontalpa, only taking a brief break in early 1576. When he arrived to rest at the settlement formerly known as the Villa Carmona, now cleansed of its dishonorable name that evoked the corrupt Quijeda, and back to the San Juan Bautista that everyone loved in 1565, which the religious leader Landa must have highly approved of. There, the Inquisition's agent in the New World rested from a bout of illnesses that put a pause on his hunt for heretics. Unfortunately for his coming victims, Diego de Landa recovered from his liver disease and asthma in San Juan Bautista and carried on with his holy mission, taking it to La Victoria, Campeche, and eventually Mérida, where he arrived in May of 1576 and finally stopped to fight it out with his liver disease. And the disease finally went out after three long years, and Landa died in 1579. So what do we think of Diego de Landa? Well, Landa is... Look... I won't lie to you guys, with all due respect to any Landa fans listening, I personally think the guy kinda… how do I put this lightly? I think he sucks guys, I really do. I mean, yes, he's a complicated guy, history is complex. Product of his time, surely the underlying ecclesiastical administration and philosophy is mostly responsible for introducing the cultural destruction overall. And sure, in his later years, he did show some slight remorse for all the destruction he and his religious order had done, yada, yada, yada. All that is nice and fair. However, Bishop Diego de Landa, more so than most, is documented as being personally and directly responsible for the destruction of hundreds, if not thousands, of documents, artifacts, idols, calendars, cups, thrones, murals, statues, buildings, and all-around symbols of indigenous culture and expression, along with the stifling of hundreds of years of knowledge and language, nearly succeeding in the total eradication of several cultures, each potentially over a thousand years old. Add on to that the impressive resume of the fact that he vehemently pushed for the Inquisition to be implemented in the Spanish-American colonies, and you might begin to understand why I don't have very much sympathy for the guy. As it happens, it would seem I'm not alone in my distaste for cultural annihilation. His moves, undoubtedly controversial now, were even controversial to the men of his time, including his direct superior Francisco de Torral who had booted Landa out of the continent in 1563 over his treatment of the Mayans remaining in Maní. The allied descendants of the Tutulchihues, those who brim over with virtue, and the tribe that had repeatedly assisted the Montejos and the Spanish Empire in the takeover of Mérida and the Yucatán Peninsula, no, not even those virtuous natives were immune to Landa's fanatical fury. This incident over the natives of Maní was actually one of the first cases presided over by our dear ex-governor Quijeda when he arrived in the Yucatán. Quijeda would find himself favoring Landa's approach and opposing Landa's boss, the Bishop Francisco de Torral, who favored the Maní natives. Landa's case would be heard back in Spain since he would be banished by Torral from the Yucatán, But once in a court so far away from anyone who might be personally sympathetic to the plight of the Mani natives and more sympathetic to Landa himself, and because justice is a lie, Landa would soon be cleared of all charges and given freedom in Spain. There he got to witness firsthand the way the Spanish Inquisition had essentially erased even a whiff of Islamic, Jewish, or any other religion but Spanish Catholicism out of the Iberian air. As soon as Francisco de Torral died in 1570, Landa was ready to act, and had enjoyed ample time convincing his clerical friends in Spain to organize the Third Ecclesiastical Mexican Council in 1571 that ended up launching the Mexican Inquisition as we know it. Now, while I won't be getting into the Inquisition today, it's important to understand that this American Inquisition wasn't so much the kill-a-bunch-of-people type like it was on the European continent, the Cocolizli had seen to that task quite thoroughly. And certainly people would die, most notably a massacre of some 300 French Huguenots in Florida that is both tragic and outside our scope at this moment. No, see, this inquisition was more of an attempted eradication of culture and ideas, and the way the native populations managed to survive this attempted eradication would result in the modern interpretations of religion we see today in Mexico. But all that is for another time, For now, we shall move on to the arrival of a new leader in the Yucatán, another royally appointed stooge, I mean, governor, Don Guillén de las Casas. Certainly an appointment that would work out better than last time. Along with this new arrival in Mérida, a fresh leader would also enter La Victoria, the Alcalde Mayor de Tabasco, Vasco Rodríguez. Governor Don Guillén de las Casas disembarked in Dos Bocas on September 10, 1577 after taking two long years to gallivant around the New World, taking in a lot of the sites, but taking up zero responsibilities as newly appointed governor of the Yucatán. Guillén's refusal to go straight to Mérida to assume his appointment is indicative of his young age for a colonial leader, around 37 years old and his youthful attitude and energy would land him in hot water with the old conquistador guard of Mérida on more than one occasion. And I mean, the guy showed up late to his job by two whole years to just vacation. I'd say I'd be pretty peeved myself, stuffy old man or not. Governor Guillén's misadventures facing his own attempted ousting and frivolous accusations after overtwisting the cabildo's beard in Mérida for the simple crime of being young and not in their pockets will be the stuff of that particular state's series. But his initiative to document the populations and resources of the territories in his command appeared to be his biggest contribution to our region of Focus's history. A year after arriving at Mérida, Don Guillén de las Casas sent a letter to King Philip II of Spain, dated to the 14th of May, 1578, stating the following problems he saw within the provincial territory. Quote, I was greatly struck by the lack of religious instruction that was felt in Tabasco, due, no doubt, to the fact that the work of the Franciscans has not spread in that distant territory. There was hardly one to two secular priests, and from this scarcity, the holy man came to see entire towns that for one to two years lacked moral and religious preaching, and even the practices of Christianity such as mass, confession, and even sometimes baptism. End quote. These concerns were aligned with the Royal Court of the Indies' desire to get a proper count on the populations and number of communities existing within their far-flung colonies, so they could be taxed properly, of course. All of this resulted in February 6, 1579, with Governor de las Casas sending a letter to his new top administrator in Tabasco, for sometime in 1579, Alonso Gomez de Sotomayor was finally replaced by the soon-to-be first censure of Tabasco. Don Vasco Rodriguez. The letter requested that the Tabascan leader compile a detailed description of, well, just about everything, really. Populations, the geography, river systems, natural resources, production capacity, number of farms, location of farms, description of tribes, custom of its inhabitants, particularities of its population, and I could go on, but you get the idea, I'm sure. New Alcalde Mayor Rodriguez got to work compiling what was essentially a colonial-era census for the Yucatec government, and the first one of its kind for Tabasco. Along with these instructions, Governor de las Casas provided copies of a good old-fashioned questionnaire to be presented to all cabildos, encomenderos, and royal officials within his territories, expected to be filled out and returned in 20 days by royal decree. Don Vasco Rodriguez received these orders while he was inspecting a small community on the banks of the Grijalva River near a point called Tres Brazos, in the heart of the modern-day La Biosfera Reserve, where the Grijalva and Usumacinta Rivers meet. And, in a wonderful example of how the administrations of Tabasco and Yucatán could absolutely cooperate rather than just quarrel, New Mayor Rodriguez would quickly act to comply with the 20-day time limit and ordered his notary to distribute the questionnaires and instructions to the necessary authorities indicated in the royal decree. These questionnaires went to anyone who owned property, industry, people, or wealth in the territory and by April 10, 1579. Mayor Rodriguez would put Melcor Alfaro de Santa Cruz to draw a detailed illustration of Tabasco and fill the map with figures of towns, rivers, coasts, main ranches, resources, etc., etc. This arrangement was finalized in the town of Huimango, where Mayor Vasco Rodriguez and cartographer Melcor Alfaro de Santa Cruz and Tabascan officials, hashed out the official territorial lines and borders, and thus the first official map of Tabasco was commissioned. On May the 4th, 1579, a list of tributary Indians throughout the territory and the village encomiendas or plantations they belonged to was compiled by the various landowners of the province, and shortly after the Cabildo of La Victoria delivered its own report on the 12th with the men of the city council providing reports on La Victoria, the indigenous peoples, their encomenderos, which ones belonged to the royal crown, which ones were privately owned, shipwrecks that had occurred, production numbers, such as how many cattle or tons of cacao had been produced, and they reported on the five important cattle ranches, which you don't have to remember, but I'll include for the sake of thorough reporting. Those belonging to the colonists, Simón de Castañeda, Inigo Peñata, Antón Gómez, Isabel de Carmen, and Feliciano Bravo, along with another along with any other items of administrative interest. This report, along with those of the landowners, were all gathered at the desk of cartographer Melchor Alfaro de Santa Cruz, who would use it to put the finishing touches on his historic map. But who exactly was this mysterious mapmaker? born in the neighboring state of Chiapas in the small yet vibrant community today known as Chapa de Corso, located a few miles west of Tuchla Gutierrez. This Chapin cartographer appears to have lived in Tabasco and been well-versed in its geography, according to both his selection for the task of drawing up the official map and a bit of text he included in his map, located between the northwest sign and the Dos Bocas and Copilco rivers, that reads, quote, the one who made this painting has traveled the majority of this province. It exists in the form and manner that is presented here, made on April 26, 1579. This sort of explanatory text can be found throughout the map, commenting on the nature of the land, rivers, and savannas, their flora, fauna, and climates, explaining the surface and borders of the territory distances between population centers, and the characteristics of certain settlements and construction materials found nearby. The map was produced on rag paper, more politely referred to as cotton paper, a thicker precursor to our thinner, modern paper, and cotton paper is still prized for its durability to this day, said to be capable of lasting decades if not centuries when properly cared for. The original map measured 57 centimeters wide and 60 centimeters high or almost two feet by two feet, and I believe its most interesting feature is its circular shape, which makes the intended orientation of the map a bit tricky to pin down. Confusingly, the Santa Cruz included indications at multiple directions of orientation, with most of the explanatory texts read with the head of the map pointing to the south, but medieval European maps were typically viewed with the head to the east, towards the rising sun, which researchers have noted also lines up with Mayan cartographic convention, and the direction most of the symbols and images are oriented towards in Melkor's map. So maybe both directions seem appropriate to Melkor the mapmaker, and he intended his map to be able to be read from multiple directions at the same time. Now, we have no idea what Melkor's formal training was, if any, but he clearly had the skill required to paint the map in such a short time and with such detail including his circular shape as an indication of inspiration from previous Mayan maps utilized by Cortes to navigate the swamps of Acalan during his march of Las Jibueras in the winter and spring of 1524-1525. to 1525. It has been reproduced and referred to by scholars throughout the centuries to aid in the understanding of the territory and its development during this early time. It would be called Picture of the Villa de Tabasco, District of the Governor of Yucatán, and it was centered in the vicinity of the Huimango Encomienda, which today is the Rancheria Huimango found in the Cunduacan municipality, likely given this importance due to it being the location where the mayor Rodriguez and his cartographer had hashed out the details of the territory and signed the contract for the work. With the coastlines of Veracruz and Campeche drawn in thick black lines and the inner riverways, lakes, and lagoons all drawn in thin lines, Santa Cruz clearly focused on the most outstanding geographical features in terms of orography, hydrography, vegetation, roads, and distribution of human settlements. This too lines up with indigenous convention, since for the pre-Hispanic peoples of Tabasco, rivers were the preferred means of communication and transportation. Think of your neighborhood's modern streets and roads, features intimately known by the local people who lived in that time. As such, the main features of the map are the hydrological systems of the coastal plains in the three basins that existed in the 16th century the Dos Bocas, Grijalva, and Usumacinta River basins. The Dos Bocas River is today known as the Seco River, or the Dry River, so it clearly didn't survive to modern day. But the Grijalva and Usumacinta River basins are still vitally important to the ecosystem of the coastal region. All three of these river systems were followed extensively in the Santa Cruz's map, with lagoons also featured prominently, an indication of their importance to the populations. Among those identified, we see the Tachaguala Lagoon in the municipality of Nacajuca, the Grijalva-Chilapa system of the current state capital, Villahermosa, the Mequacan in the north near Comalcalco, and the Simatanes, Grandes, and Ciralapa lagoons, which once stood in the center of Dochontalpa, But have since gone the way of the Río Seco, being intimately connected to said river. As far as mountain features, the east of the map holds the northern Sierra of Chapas, reaching into what is the municipality of Huimanguillo, all the way to the folds of the Sierra de Petén, poking into the municipality of Tenosique, cutting through the state with little regard for political boundaries. A few silhouettes are labeled, such as the Mono Pelado, or Bald Monkey, and the Madrigal Hills, as well as the Chichon Volcano, which are all labeled and identified. Meanwhile, in the west, we see the foothills of the Sierra de San Martin in Veracruz, and in the southeast stand those of the Sierra Madre of Oaxaca, from where the Coatzacoalco River originates. Dotted between all these hydrological features, we see four distinct vegetative zones, identified by their differently sized and uniquely shaped trees, located in the regions of the Xontalpa the Laguna de Términos, La Sierra, and the western Dos Bocas and Coatzacoalcos River Basins. I can't pretend to know much about the inner workings of Melkor, the mapmaker's mind, when drawing his most influential masterpiece. But he seems to have had more love for the nature of Tabasco than he did for the people that resided within. While the rivers, mountains, and jungles are lovingly described and wonderfully painted, His depiction of human settlements appear on the map almost like an afterthought, forced like a stain upon his beautiful ode to the serenity of nature. We see throughout the map houses identified by a simple facade featuring a door and triangle roof topped with a cross meant to represent a settlement. These drawings seem to lack the same care and attention the natural features had, and this could simply be due to the fact that Melkor had to wait for the population data to come in from the questionnaire while the geographical data was all in his head, and he could thus work on those depictions for a longer time, giving it more care. And certainly this had something to do with it. But you'll see in a second why de Santa Cruz's own notes make me think that there's more to it than that. The houses show no distinction in design and are only distinguishable by size. The bigger the size of the house icon, the more importance given by the designer. Oshelotán was given the highest honor by being the largest house, representing its growing importance even back then as a religious center. But it was also the closest settlement to Melkor's home state of Chiapas, and likely the region Melkor grew up in or around. So a bit of a nod there as well. Tapijulapa, Tabasco's only ciudad mágica, or magic city, is the second largest house, sticking with the theme of religious and teapa-based importance. But after this, several indigenous towns are found in the next size tier, since they would have been the most populated, such as Nacajuca and Teapa, and of course the most populated Spanish town in the territory, Santa Maria de la Victoria. The smallest houses represented the many cattle ranches or plantations that existed dotted across the province, and all the settlements were shown linked through a thin network of lines that represented land roads and paths. All in all, we see 80 settlements represented, 14 Spanish-owned cattle ranches, three cacao orchards, and 59 are towns of Chontal, Nahuá, or Zoque Indians, while two were considered Spanish towns, San Juan de Ulua, a.k.a. Coatzacoalcos, to the west in Veracruz, and the provincial capital of Santa Maria de la Victoria. Along with his circular map, Melkor the mapmaker would submit an attached relation section, which included some self-written notes and thoughts on the province, and a vital peek into the mysterious cartographer's mind. The most interesting of these notes to me is the following point, I don't know how many Indians there are in this province. The towns of it are populated with little concert between streets and farmhouses. These are evil inclined people. They do nothing except out of fear or force. They, the natives of this land and province, are very bad farmers who work very little for their livelihood because most of the year they lack maintenance. They are not people who would like to treasure because they have no tomorrow nor consideration that they will lack in having something they can't wait to throw it away. Quote. And he finishes off this scathing review with a rough estimate on their numbers. Quote, "This province of Tabasco has 3000 indians scarcely they have come to a great decrease since its pacification for having been populated by more than 30000 indians." End quote. Now it's not clear why Melchor the mapmaker held such a low opinion of the natives and inhabitants of Tabasco. One would think that living so close to them in Chapas might have endeared him and developed a soft spot for them but quite the contrary seems to have occurred. What caused the mysterious mapmaker to have such a sour view of the locals has possibly been lost to history. It seems he was likely just another product of the common thinking of the time, and if today's political landscape is any indication, it seems these kinds of opinions still plague our society to this day. And I'll end my obligatory philosophical musing per episode right there. These personal notes of the Santa Cruz are called his historical-geographical relations, and when coupled with the map, they provide one of the few graphic first-hand documents of the historical geography of the colonial territory of Tabasco during the 16th century. It is also one of the few graphic sources that shows the hydrography of the same time period, and these river systems would see massive transformation after 1675, making this particular documentation of their past vitally important. Large-scale hydrological disruptions were further deepened by hydroelectrical, hydroagricultural, highway and oil infrastructure works, and urban growth throughout the following centuries to severely endanger the already depleted riverways of northern and central Tabasco. Let the Río Seco stand as a warning of the coming reality for countless rivers in Tabasco if things continue in the same manner, with little regard for the consequences or sustainability. Thankfully, projects like the Cent La Biosfera Reserve are a step in the right direction, but more can always be done. Upon its completion, the map was attached to the various Cabildos reports, and it is interesting to note that the reports compiled by the Cabildo of La Victoria on May 14, 1579, did not care to include the new San Juan Bautista community in its otherwise exhaustively detailed report, a clear indication of how much the coastal population was beginning to dislike this upstart little inland community. This sentiment likely grew from the competition San Juan Bautista started to represent to the La Victoria status as the most important city in Tabasco. It also didn't help that many of the La Victoria encomenderos, business owners, and well-to-do men had also been staunchly against Quijeda and his removal of their prized and inexpensive human-powered transportation systems, so Villa Carmona was very much off the Tabascan capital's Christmas card list, to say the least. But change was coming. And Quijeda would just be the first of many leaders to contend with the coming danger of foreign privateers and move to make an effort towards the defense of his vulnerable populations. Mayor Vasco de Rodriguez would be no different, and sometime during his first year in office, in 1579, he had ordered the evacuation of longtime native settlement and brief Montejo stronghold, Salamanca de Chicalango, due directly to the encroaching pirate menace. This population had been located right on the western coast of the Laguna de Terminos, the very same bay the English Corsairs had been building up into their stronghold, specifically on the island of Tris. This population of Xicalango would move up the river Candelaria to another population we have heard about, the site of Honochta, place of the five great lords, today known as Honuta. This will be just the first of many communities we will see move upriver, fleeing the English menace but they were invariably forced to remain close to the river or lose their best means of survival. So, the threat would never be fully eliminated, no matter how far away from the coast they ran. Life across the Western world, including Tabasco, would drastically change in 1582, as one monumentous royal decree arrived and was dispersed to all the provincial capitals of the Americas, including La Victoria, in May. This decree officially declared by direct order of Pope Gregory XIII that the Julian calendar, since its creation and implementation by Roman Emperor Julius Caesar in 46 BCE, was no longer to be utilized in favor of the aptly named Gregorian calendar that now accounted for the 11 missing minutes per solar year that Old JC's version had miscalculated resulting in the entire Western world slowly drifting out of sync with the seasons after over 1,500 years of this seemingly insignificant error accumulating year after year. Two years later, in 1584, the census-taking mayor Vasco Rodriguez was replaced by the Royal Audiencia of Mexico, who next appointed Don Juan Ruiz de Aguirre as the new alcalde mayor of Tabasco. Where Vasco Rodriguez had symbolically drawn the borders of Tabasco with the help of mysterious mapmaker the Santa Cruz, new mayor de Aguirre would take the full plunge and publish a decree proclaiming Tabasco politically independent from the Yucatan government, unilaterally proclaiming it its own colony exclusively under New Spain, and denying allegiance to the ascendant leader in the Yucatan, Governor Francisco de Solís Osorio. Now, this wasn't just a political issue, but rather, according to Dr. Diogenes, this was a very personal feud, playing out in the highest halls of colonial government, and it's possible the two men knew each other from back in Spain, given how personally they seemed to come after each other. In an echo of the altercation between Dr. Diego de Quijeda and the Mérida elite, the two leaders would engage in some pretty standard wax at each other, such as de Aguirre granting a series of vacant plots to new owners without consulting the governor, and the governor personally petitioning the king for Aguirre's direct removal, who, of course, had been the pettiest of all when he declared a political break from the self-perceived superior province. However, the biggest thing de Aguirre did to rock the colonial boat was hit the Yucatan government where it really stung, in their taxes. Similar to Quijeda, but the fresh mayor would take things to an entirely new level, To accomplish this Quijeda-surpassing feat, the Aguirre would issue an edict banning the payment of taxes on goods that left Tabasco for Yucatán or arrived from Yucatán to Tabasco, basically an interstate sales tax. The real death blow came with the denial of tax payments for Yucatán goods exported through Tabasco to wider markets in the greater Caribbean and later on to Europe. But why was it such a big deal that Tabasco was now refusing to pay taxes to the Yucatán? You see, despite increasingly developing into a large and important city in this corner of the New World, Mérida lacked a direct port to the sea, and so all of its goods and exports had to be run out of the various ports along the Gulf it had direct access to, including San Francisco de Campeche, Santa Maria de la Victoria, and San Juan de Ulua, a.k.a. Coatzacoalcos. But of course, there were the pirates right next door in the Laguna de Terminos to contend with, and the mighty transatlantic Spanish convoys, vital in that they were the only ships equipped to reliably transport goods across the ocean and powerful enough to discourage or fight off pirate attacks, would eventually stop servicing this dangerous port of Campeche, located so close to the pirates in a natural ambush point, opting to go for the slightly safer and open waters around the Veracruz port of San Juan de Ulua. This would elevate the importance of the Veracruzan custom houses greatly, But it left Merida in a bit of a pickle, since the safest way to get its cargo out to market was by risking a boat right past the noses of the pirates at the island of Tris to reach San Juan de Ulua and these mighty transatlantic Spanish convoys, or the much safer option of circling by land and river around the threat through the Campeche and Tabascan border, and then walking it all the way to San Juan de Ulua, or just sailing it through the networks of rivers to the coast where you can more reliably get it to Veracruz. This brings us to the riveting subject of colonial taxes and their importance in the New World, but in those parchment-colored days of colonial history, they were referred to as the al and the equally important al Like with most epic-sounding names in colonial Spain, this is another holdout from the Reconquista of the peninsula, and likely started as an Arabic word, Al-Moharif. Which meant something along the lines of inspector during the Arab domination of the Iberian Peninsula. It would be adopted and Castilianized into something a bit more European with the almojarifazgo Into something a bit more European with the essentially becoming an import tax for anything entering in and out of a Spanish-owned port or city. The tax was broadly applied to any cargo, goods, livestock, people, didn't really matter. All would pay the Almoharifasgo to help finance the bureaucracy and expenses of the Castilian crown across its empire. Initially implemented only to raise funds for sieges on Muslim-held cities, but after the Reconquista was complete, the Almoharifasgo was kept around as a helpful means of raising money for the new Catholic rulers of the Iberian Peninsula. Despite the widespread adoption of this tax, not all Almojarifazgos are created equally. And while at first the court's bureaucracy would only have to mine those ports found along the coasts of the Spanish mainland, as the empire grew and new far off lands were conquered, the Spanish crown realized it couldn't possibly enforce every single port in its vast empire as it wanted to. So it began outsourcing this all-important tax collection to its various royal agents who could personally oversee the collection in said far-off territories. This outsourcing of the all-important taxes would, in theory, allow them to be collected confidently, with diverse populations, their available resources, rates of production, and region-specific needs all taken into consideration in real time to make for the most effective collection of taxes. By 1528, evidence exists of the Almoharifazgo being collected in the Viceroyalty of New Spain, and a caja real, literally translated to royal money box, was being built. And what we can imagine as a sort of royal tax house was soon after established in Mexico City to watch over the general collection of this all-important duty. On February 28, 1543, the royal tax house announced it would be extending a tax on all products imported into Nueva España from Europe, meaning the wealthy colonists importing fancy comforts from home to satisfy their lavish lifestyles were hit pretty hard. At the same time, export and intercolonial trade was allowed to remain tax-free in an effort to support colonial producers and merchants. Eventually, another tax was introduced specifically for the American markets, and the Alcabal officially entered the picture. This would be a sort of sales tax, collected upon the first sale of an item in the American market, and this, it turns out, would become the real moneymaker for the empire. You see, the Spanish king and his heavily reliant on trade empire really super wanted this Alcabal trade tax as it started cranking out money for the royal treasury the way the Catholic Church was cranking out gold coins for the Roman Catholic treasuries with their utilization of the holy tithes all echoes of the experiences under the recently expelled Muslim rulers who would have implemented their own forms of religious and economic taxes in accordance with the specific branches of Islam they practiced. It's still not fully agreed where the word al-Kabal came from. Some say it's from the Hispanic Arabic al-Kabala, defining the specific contract itself. While in 1726, Father al proposed the words cabala or Sebele, meaning receive, collect, or deliver. While intellectual of the same time period, Sebastián de Covarrubias proposed gabala, meaning to limit or assess. In both cases, the two thinkers added the article al to the beginning, since you gotta make it sound Hispano-Arabic somehow. Originally adopted in the 11th century, no doubt imitating some previous Muslim tax, Eventually, it would be utilized by the Castilian kings to raise funds for their war with the very same kingdoms of Islam that had inspired the tax in the first place. Initially used only to raise funds for an immediate campaign or siege, by 1393 the courts of Madrid had granted the Alcabal to the King Enrique III in perpetuity, making it a permanent tax freely available to use at the king's discretion. This made the tax part of his patrimony and the king soon realized they could place a debt on the income of alcabals, then sell or donate them in favor of individuals, essentially creating a whole new avenue for royal favors. Pretty much, a young rising noble in court could make it big by buying, or being granted, one of these regional sections of al collection, which came in the form of a lump debt you owed the king, and anything you collected beyond that was yours to enjoy as you pleased. Now, obviously, this opens the door for potential corruption, and surely, that was rampant. However, for a time, this feudal-like system of tax collection worked well enough, and we have been able to track trends in the colonial economies, and thus the lives of the colonists, through the records of tax collection kept at each of the major ports of the Spanish colonial empire. But let's get down to some numbers, since I know you're all dying to know just how many schmeckles we're talking about here. Well, in the same 1543 decree by the Royal Tax House establishing the Alcabal, we see that the Almoharifasgo tax had been set at 2.5% of the goods declared from Sevilla, while the Alcabal saw a 5% tax imposed for entry into the Americas. Extensive research on this topic is helpfully provided by Emiliano Gil Blanco, who wrote an article in the journal Perspectives on Economic Development, titled the financing of Spanish colonial commerce in the Americas, the Almoharifasgo, and the port of Veracruz. And let me tell you, I cannot thank him enough for his accessible approach to what is likely a brain-numbing topic for most. Gil Blanco manages to, dare I say, make tax history fun. But either way, his research has been instrumental in the writing of this section, and I've been horribly paraphrasing much of what the article says already. Link to the website at thehistoriesofmexico.com, along with the picture of Melkor's map. But I'm going to quote him directly on this next part, as I don't want to get into the weeds on the facts, and gil Blanco is just so much more succinct and brief, so we'll let him take it away from here. Here are some numbers on the collection of the Almojarifazgo specifically. Quote, At the beginning of the reign of Philip II, the Almoharifasgo raised in the port of Sevilla amounted to between 54,000 and 62,000 pesos per year. By the middle of the 17th century, this reached 600,000. In Veracruz between 1568 and 1571, 322,899 pesos were raised, while in the mid-17th century, 1646 to 1650, The figures reached 291,246 pesos. The fact that the quantities were so unequal between the two centuries does not mean that there was a commercial or revenue superiority between one and the other. The characteristics of the evolution of the collection of the Almoharifasgo in the Caja de Veracruz contradict this difference by its irregularities, which was influenced by the fleets. Thus, we see that it was in the first 15 years of the 17th century that almost 40% of what was collected was concentrated. A symptomatic fact of this tax irregularity can be seen in the annual average, which we have set at 89,899.45 pesos compared to the total collection." Now those numbers are nothing to scoff at in colonial times and it would be the desire to ensure not a penny was being lost that censuses like those conducted by Governor Guillén de las Casas in the Yucatán and Mayor Vasco Rodríguez in Tabasco were ordered. Needless to say, the crown was receiving a nice chunk of change a year, no matter how you sliced it, but this tax system developed a rather complex relationship between the port cities and the market cities they serviced, the cities who actually ordered or produced all the goods coming in and out of said port. Gil Blanco's article focuses on the situation emerging between the central Mexican Valley and the port of Veracruz, but the same thing was happening with the province of Mérida and the port of Campeche, or the dozens of communities along the Usumacinta and Grijalva, such as San Juan Bautista and their port of Santa Maria de la Victoria. But since we are working with a more complete compilation of stats coming out of Veracruz, I'll keep using those metrics, which we can imagine were similar in Tabasco, but significantly smaller, given Tabasco's low rung on the production ladder. The actual merchants opted to reside in the comfort of the cities, where they could meet clients and suppliers, negotiate for their goods, and pay their taxes, all from the safety of an inland community, far from the possibility that a filthy pirate could soil their fancy petticoats. These guys would have their agents in the port cities, who met with the actual officers of the port tax houses, which had to be by the docks in order to document the payments made by the merchants in the very same ports just as their goods were coming in, along with all the information about an incoming or departing vessel. Gil Blanco puts it best when, quote, For each period of accounts of each royal service officer, four relationships were established 10% Almoharifasco for entry of vessels from Sevilla, 5% for the entry period from the American colonies, a 2.5% departure fee bound for the first, and a 2.5% departure tax to the colonies. They included, in addition to the paid Almoharifasco, the type and name of the boat, its master, the origin and destination of the same, and the date of entry or departure from the port. Sometimes, they also recorded the person who paid the tax at the caja, but this was done very rarely." It goes without saying that these sorts of records are invaluable to historians and retellers of historical stories such as myself, and through its collection in Veracruz, Emiliano Gil Blanco has identified five distinct economic stages, initial boom beginning in 1573, followed by initial decline, a second bigger boom, then a second bigger decline, leading to a final decline ending in 1650. The years of 1576 to 1580 saw an outbreak of yellow fever ravaging New Spain, particularly the Central Mexican Valley and Mexico City, leaving a lull in the economy of the Viceroyalty. As populations stopped getting too sick to work, the stability of the labor force led to stability in the markets, resulting in a healthier and stable collection of almoharifazgo, indicated by the explosion of trade in the ports of Nueva España, particularly Veracruz. As elites in New Spain began importing fine goods from Europe to support their lavish tastes, such as Andalusian wine and oil, or finely crafted linens and furniture, it necessitated a co-evolution of the export trade, as ships coming to supply the populations of European origin sought cargo to take back with them and help pay for the return leg of their long journey. This mercantile no-brainer is one of the reasons the transatlantic trade began to boom with places This mercantile no-brainer is one of the reasons the transatlantic triangle trade began to boom with places like Veracruz acting as re-exporters of the leftover cargo fleets they then directed towards areas like the Caribbean and back to Europe with their own Mexican produced goods and resources to sell So what did all of this economic prosperity mean for the governorship of the Yucatan, annexed secessionist province of Tabasco? Well, Mérida had a problem. If you'll remember, Mérida does not have a proper port from which to import or export its considerable market of goods. Thus, it turned to ports such as Campeche and La Victoria to accomplish these trade goals. But as of 1557, pirates had made the Campeche and Victoria ports significantly less reliable for the utilization of loading and unloading goods. Both the Yucatan and Tabasco found it safer and easier to export their goods via Veracruz, which serviced the capital of the entire Viceroyalty, and the royal fleets that made port were much more formidable and capable of both carrying large amounts of cargo and protecting it against the ever-present pirates prowling the oceanic trade lanes. Smaller, nimbler ships would be utilized to transport goods via the rivers and coastlines, and according to Dr. Diogenes Lopez-Reyes, during this time, more than a 1,000 loads of cacao, about 4,000 beef skins, hundreds of casks of wine, and various other goods such as dyes, salt, and sugar, would be collected from the various villas in Tabasco all to be exported from the more international port of San Juan de Ulua in Veracruz. We even know that each bullskin was sold in Veracruz for 3 pesos and 2 pesos for reals for steer hides, while a load of cacao was sold for 20 pesos. In both of these cases, for example, there would be an Almojarifazgo for the exit out of La Victoria, another one once it came into San Juan de Ulua, then an alcabal would be charged on the sale of the product. And when you take into account the three separate times tax-collecting entities had been allowed to take an economic bite out of the trade, and it begins to make sense why these taxes were immensely important to the men who owned the collection rights from the king. In essence, the governor of Yucatan, by being in charge of Tabasco as part of his jurisdiction, was the rightful owner of the territory's tax debt to the king, and had the right to collect said taxes on goods that traveled through all the ports under the Yucatan governorship including those in and out of La Victoria, where there was apparently an increase in trade going on. But of course, now that that trade was picking up, poor Governor De Solis Osorio wasn't being allowed to exercise his fiscal rights over what he believed was his rightful provinces by the big mean Alcalde Mayor Juan Ruiz de Aguirre, who had gone and declared Tabasco its own thing and swiped the coveted tax rights in question right from under the Yucatec governor's nose. The decree was celebrated in La Victoria, where the tax revenue would provide a boon for the struggling merchants and elitists, carving out their survival in this harsh but newly independent province. Yet it would be bitterly received in Mérida, where it appears the Cabildo could now only reliably count on the tax income generated from the Campeche port, which, as we mentioned several times, was increasingly under threat of pirate attacks, deterring many transatlantic convoys from venturing into its port and starving the Merida merchants from reaching the rich markets of Europe. Governor de Solís Osorio would not stand for this, and deployed his lieutenant governor, Gómez Bustamente Andrade, to dig up any dirt he could on the troublesome mayor, hopefully enough dirt to discredit him completely in the eyes of the Audencia, who knows, maybe even get him arrested, whatever it took to bring down the intolerable upstart and get the tax flow moving back in the right directions and into the proper pockets. All in all, Governor Gomez Bustamante Andrade was a busy little sleuth and learned of de Aguirre's own lieutenant, who, it was discovered, was a gambling and licentious man, and this led the investigation to slowly unravel the true extent of the Tabascan administrator's various abuses of power. The crimes de Aguirre and his lieutenant were accused of include some very familiar charges, if our experiences with disgraced corregidor Dr. Diego de Quijeda have taught us anything. Although his count doesn't number in the triple digits like some people, Dr. Diogenes says that Aguirre was accused by Governor Solis of the following crimes. Auctioning off the Indian tributes belonging to the crown, forcing the Alcabals to be paid with cacao, and then inflating the price of said cacao in order to defraud the royal collectors and pay more with less. Illegally seizing 500 cowhides and 100 steers from colonist García de la Desma, then sold them for a healthy, tidy profit in Veracruz, bringing back, along with the ill-gotten gains, some fine wines and fancy linens, and that the two men had paid for a proxy agent in Spain to look after their interests at the direct expense of the encomenderos of Tabasco. Finally, Mayor Aguirre was accused of going out into the provinces and, for the distinct honor and privilege of hosting him in their homes, charging every individual indigenous man and woman a jug of cane brandy or half a load of cacao. If any unfortunate victim, I I mean villager host, was unable to pay this inordinate fee, then according to the accusations, they were ordered to receive 100 lashes by the cruel mayor. So, we have mismanagement of property and or resources, we have abuse of the natives, and we have bending the law for personal gain. I feel like we're missing one. Ah, yes, there it is, of course. Mayor de Aguirre would also be accused of committing the most shameful of acts to a Catholic, starting a casino. More specifically, he was accused of charging men to come into his home and gamble, transforming his house into what Dr. Diogenes described as, quote, a temple of dice and cards, end quote. Thanks to these thorough and unbiased investigations, the Yucatec lieutenant governor handed his boss the ammunition he needed to open fire on his rival in the legal halls of the Audencia. The next few years of economic prosperity in the Gulf Coast colonies would be spent squabbling amongst themselves in this manner, and Governor De Solis Osorio would spend most of his remaining tenure painting the picture of an abusive and ineffective Tabascan mayor to not only remove him from power, but full-on reversed his controversial break from Yucatec control. Despite the considerable fire Mayor de Aguirre was now under, he nonetheless managed to retain his job for several more years, enjoying the economic benefits independence afforded him and his supporters. So if things were going so well for Tabasco, what happened that led to the first economic crisis in the early colonial economy that Gil Blanco mentioned? Well, things in Europe have once again butted in and thrown the entire colony into fresh turmoil. According to Gil quote, The European policy of the Castilian crown conditioned the evolution of commercial traffic between the two continents and between the same colonies. Thus, the wars of the late 16th century with Holland and France, allied with England, would influence the traffic and the collection of the Almoharifasgo. Fleets suffered harassment by these countries and by pirates, some English. During this period, we see how the volume and value of what was negotiated between Sevilla and Mexico was reduced, leading to a short-term crisis. After the signing of the Treaty of Revenne in 1598, this trend would change." Quote. The inclusion of the Treaty of Verven gives away the wars Gil Blanco is referring to, and we have mentioned some of these conflicts already. But what exactly were these wars, and why would they repeatedly spill over to the American colonies? Well, if you don't mind a brief field trip, let's take a quick crash course in the European religious wars of the late 16th century from a Spanish and English angle and see if we can trace some of the effects spilling out across the Atlantic and into Mexican waters. The story of religious strife in Europe has a long, long history, and it's hard to say exactly where everything began. But in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his history-changing 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, and depending on who you ask, inspired a noble struggle for freedom and independence or needlessly sparked a series of bloody religious conflicts. Whatever view one had on Luther would likely be predicated by the religious affiliation and thus the battle lines are enticingly easy to draw between the well-established Christian branch known as Roman Catholicism which were thoroughly allied with the Pope and the status quo during their abject best to stamp out the emerging Christian branches that supported some or all of Luther's beliefs, often collectively called the Protestants. The various Protestant sects sought to reform the Church and remove many of the features they no longer agreed with, which is why this period is also known as the Protestant Reformation. But who exactly were these Protestants? Well, the label of Protestant is an umbrella term meant to encompass a varying array of separate groups that cropped up in nearly every European kingdom before, during, and after the 16th century, some groups even coming to convert their local leaders, resulting in Protestant monarchs popping up across the land. Monarchs who were not entirely sold on the whole blind adherence to the Pope and his fancy hat, calling the shots all the way down in Rome, leading to an increasing tension between the Catholic and Protestant worlds. The most famous of these monarchs has to be King Henry VIII, famous during the 1530s for breaking with the Catholic Church in order to essentially become his own Pope and give himself both permission and forgiveness from God to divorce his old wife Catherine of Aragon and marry his new fling Anne Boleyn, a process he repeated five more times to accumulate a staggering six total wives throughout his long and accomplished lifetime. And if you want a quick way to remember how many wives and how each one did, all you have to do is remember the following slightly morbid English nursery rhyme. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Which is pretty much exactly how each of the six women who married King Henry VIII would meet their respective matrimonial fates. This absolute bonkers course of events not only put Henry VIII on most people's list of top 10 English monarchs, But contemporarily stamped his dynasty and kingdom as a potential ally to the smaller Protestant movements and nations struggling against the might of the Roman Catholic yoke, all now jostling for pole position on the growing list of enemies of the Catholic Pope and Rome. And this is truly how we should think about the Protestant movement during the early 16th century. Separate groups unified mostly in their dispute with the Catholic Church But most of these groups would cherry-pick the practices they wished to break from and kept the ones they liked. For example, Luther, arguably the father of Protestantism, disagreed with the English king's divorce, but found no problem with polygamy, saying that would have been a better way to satisfy his large appetites. But he had considerably less of an issue with the king breaking with the church, although he didn't think there needed to be a direct figurehead in the church at all. So again, he disagreed with King Henry there, having taken the role of Pope for himself. Not exactly black and white in those times, and most of these things, the Puritans, for example, who are also considered a Protestant group, would have disagreed with completely. But if the Protestant nations looked to England as their quote unquote champion and defender in Europe, who did the Catholics have? Enter the Spanish Empire into our story and with the influx of cash the discovery of the Americas afforded this ascendant nation, recognition across the Christian world for their successful expulsion of the hated Muslims in the Reconquista, and hearkening back to the idea that the Habsburg rulers of Europe, particularly under Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, were the true defenders of Catholicism. This had granted Spain certain privileges, and since 1494, the Pope of that time had signed the Treaty of Tordesillas, splitting the New World into a Spanish and Portuguese sphere of control, with the Spanish crown considering everything west of the Tordesillas meridian its property, which included the entire North American continent. The exact meridian that was used for this treaty was never specified, but it's commonly accepted to be along a meridian 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde island. Although, which specific island was meant to be measured from was also, helpfully, never specified. Which leads us to the centuries of debate and speculation that we find ourselves wading through today. Now, for a while, everyone respected this treaty, mainly because the Spanish and Portuguese were the only ones really committing all that many resources to oceanic exploration. But pretty soon, the other European nations would catch up to their Iberian neighbors. With England and France among the first to truly test the limits of the Tordesillas Treaty. And this is why some of the most famous pirates and brigands of this time were actually celebrated as traders, merchants, even scientists back in their home countries. Just simple businessmen coming over to barter their way into the good life, cruelly labeled criminals by this unfair treaty. So while yes, the religious affairs had been flaring up here or there in Europe, Those affairs seemed far off on the continent, and much removed from the peaceful Americas and their welcoming locals. There's no way the war had to reach them, right? For a time this seemed to be the case, for despite the threat these French and English merchants posed to the trade monopoly the imperial Spanish authorities back in Spain were seeking and enjoying in North America, thanks to the Treaty of Tordesillas, a tentative peace began to emerge between the foreign merchants and American colonists. The European Spanish administrators hated these merchants, but the American Spanish administrators in the colonies were much more pragmatic fellas, and welcomed any merchants operating in their waters regardless of country of origin. And I mean, if you were a beleaguered frontier mayor just looking to keep your poor colonists alive by any means, English goods worked just as well as Spanish goods, especially if the Spanish goods were months away so the local officials often turned a blind eye when trading with the English who relished the opportunity to break into such a large market once closed off to them. Some Englishmen, like famed privateer slash pirate John Hawkins, did their level best to encourage these oversights by putting his crew on their absolute best behavior when dealing with the Spanish, and he even reportedly requested handwritten notes from the administrators he successfully worked with to report on his good conduct to their colleagues. In the hopes that he would be welcomed for trade or at the very least spared from any jumpy movements while negotiating. Of course not all privateers acted this way and some including many of the French captains certainly did opt for a more forceful form of negotiation, but on the whole the attacks were relatively few between 1557 and 1568. So what happened in 1568? Well these sort of tenuous agreements stuck around for as long as they could, as much out of necessity as for personal monetary gain for the parties involved. During one of these precarious meetings, English and Spanish ships found themselves both occupying the small port of San Juan de Ulua in Veracruz, and a deal was struck to keep the peace and let everyone resupply and perform their repairs safely. Unbeknownst to the English, a brand new viceroy had at that very same moment arrived from Spain with two fully armed galleons, and the Honorable New Viceroy, Martin Enriquez de Almanza, had a direct mandate from the London-hating royal administrators back in Spain to rid the entire Viceroyalty of Mexico of the English dogs and their constant trading. According to one account I read, said Honorable Viceroy reneged on the truce initially agreed upon by the port administrators and English captains for safe passage and opened fire upon the unassuming English ships. However, it's just as likely that the English suspected something was up and opened fire first in a bid to escape the port. Who's to say what actually happened, as both sides would, of course, point the finger at the other. But however it went down, this altercation in 1568 would be known as the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, and it would be a signal that they had all just passed the threshold and into a dangerous new phase of the conflict. This 1568 Battle of San Juan de Ulua would ultimately break down the tentative peace between the privateers and colonists as the gloves really came off on both sides. English and Dutch privateers began attacking and raising Spanish ports and colonies across the Spanish-American mainland and Caribbean holdings, a geographical region often referred to as the Spanish Main. While Spanish fleets prowled and mercilessly hunted the seas of said Spanish Main, for any unsuspecting English necks they could wrap their hands around for some good old ringing. The tactics and resources for defense would unfortunately fall woefully behind those for attack, and so the lack of significant city fortifications will explain the mass exodus we begin to see from the many coastal communities hit by this outbreak of war, known to historians as the Second Anglo-Spanish Trade War of 1568 to 1573, and the explosion of the whole of the West Indies into a sea of danger and violence that set the stage for the Anglo-Spanish War of 1585 to 1604. Ultimately, these Anglo-Spanish hostilities would be ended by the successors of the main instigators, and the Treaty of London signed in 1604 set things back to the way they were before hostilities broke out in 1585, minus the Treaty of Tordesillas. But what caused all these hostilities to break out in the first place? Well, a few things had actually been contributing to the growing rivalry between England and Spain, led during the mid-16th century by Henry VIII and Charles V, respectively. Charles V we met briefly as the uber-ambitious Holy Roman Emperor, who would also be known as Charles I, King of Spain, to his Spanish subjects, while Henry VIII is, well, Henry VIII, likely one of the most ambitious men to ever don the crown of England, despite the obvious rivalry between the two monarchs they never managed to come to direct conflict, despite many opportunities to do so. But Henry was apparently too busy running through wives and keeping the Pope off his back, while Charles had multiple territories to juggle as Holy Roman Emperor and all those economies to balance. So getting into a prolonged punching match with the other never worked out in either ruler's political calculus. Their children, on the other hand, while they were considerably less burdened with such grand matters, and grew up watching this conflict envelop most of the continent. These continental affairs were sparked by the many Protestant sects that sprang up during the aptly named Protestant Reformation, an incredibly complex topic I won't get into here for lack of bandwidth, but can recommend the amazing podcast, From Wittenberg to Westphalia, by Benjamin Jacobs, if this topic interests you at all. Ben really explains the time period in outstanding detail, so do check him out after you finish this episode, Or if you find yourself wondering about this time period and need something to hold you off while you wait for the new Histories of Mexico episode. Of the continental conflicts occurring during the mid-16th century, the struggle of the Dutch Protestants against their Spanish Catholic overlords is easily the best representation of these kinds of proxy wars that were being fought within the kingdoms of Spain, England, France, and the hundreds of principalities, fiefdoms, and kingdoms that made up the Holy Roman Empire. Again, see Benjamin for more info. But for a long time, the English crown resisted throwing their fancy wigs in the Dutch ring because immediately after Henry VIII's death in 1553, he was controversially replaced by his eldest Catholic daughter, Mary, instead of a more popular Protestant heir. Things would get even more controversial when Spanish King Philip II, defender of Catholicism, married the very same Queen Mary I of England in 1554 making Philip essentially the king-consort of a new, catholically-aligned England for the next four years. Mary I was Henry VIII's half-Spanish daughter from his annulled marriage to Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon, so the whole reign of Mary I was pretty messy for a slew of reasons, both religious, legal, and cultural. But if you would like more information on that front, David Crowther's History of England is just the stuff for you. He goes into much more detail and British wit than I could ever hope to accomplish, and can't recommend his channel enough, particularly his work on this topic of Henry VIII and his offspring. Crowther starts at the very beginning, and I highly recommend listening to all of it like I have, but if you want to get to the relevant episodes to our current time period, I would recommend starting around episode 226, The Great Weather, related to Henry VIII and his spicy marital exploits. While episode 300, Trade and Explorations, and Onward, gets into the era of Elizabeth's reign concerning our episode's focus and the conflict with Spain. Really spicy stuff. But things would get even spicier when in 1558, Mary I was deposed by Protestant rebels in the country and replaced with the much more popular daughter of Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth, another name you've likely heard before. But Elizabeth I was very wary about the main Spanish threat to her island nation, and did not appear secure enough in her early rule to antagonize such a wealthy and intimidating foe. Also, England was practically broke after her father and half-sister had squandered so much of the royal treasury. So Elizabeth implemented the strategy she would utilize through her reign to successfully rule England for nearly 45 long years, avoiding taking a firm stance on any issue for as long as possible. In this case, she would not commit to the Dutch cause of breaking Spain's chains, but she also didn't deny any Dutch hopes that one day perhaps she and mighty England would lend them aid. And although it would take a few years in coming, ultimately their hopes would be well invested in the English Queen. But Elizabeth would have to play the long game and patiently wait for her moment to strike, which is exactly what Elizabeth did best. To the international public, she would flat out deny even the thought of aiding the Dutch cause. Why, those lands belonged to the King of Spain, of course. She wouldn't dare lift a finger to interfere in any way, honest. However, the economies of England and the Netherlands were intimately linked thanks to the wool trade. And internally, a mini-power struggle would develop between pro-war and anti-war factions that would eventually be won out by the war hawks, who were staunchly against the perceived Spanish encroachment and encirclement. Among these men were the likes of Sir Francis Drake, who, along with his cousin and fellow English sailor, John Hawkins, had been one of the many sailors illegally trading in the Spanish Main, and participated in the Battle of San Juan de Ulua in 1568. This battle did not immediately result in conflict back on the continent, but instead began the trade war I mentioned from 1568 to 1573 with Elizabeth masterfully managing to avoid full-blown war by publicly scolding her intrepid agents in court to the Spanish ambassador's face and flirting with various Catholic marriage proposals, including one from Philip II, defender of Catholicism. But of course, privately, she was the one to originally bless her intrepid agent's journey in the first place and celebrated their return, all while making disgusted faces at the various letters she received from her Catholic suitors. In addition to all this, it just so happened that this trade disruption was having real-time repercussions in the Protestant Dutch struggle by reducing Spain's capability of resupplying its front-line troops. Sir Francis Drake was punished by being sent on his famous circumnavigation of the world between 1577 and 1580 along which voyage he further agitated the Spanish by indiscriminately plundering the ports and vessels of any imperial ships or ports that refused to trade with him, much to the ire of Philip II. And on it went like this for several years, with the English supporting the Portuguese in a succession crisis of 1580, and the Spanish returning the favor by supporting a Catholic rebellion in Ireland against Elizabeth's Protestant rule. Although both attempts to support the opposing factions were squarely defeated, it highlights the Cold War-style conflict the Anglo-Spanish War really was. In fact, it was never even called the Anglo-Spanish War by anyone but the historians who studied it, since war was never officially declared, but in 1584, things certainly seemed like they were headed directly for armed conflict. The leader of the Dutch nobility, struggling for independence from Spain in the Netherlands, was a man named William of Orange and in 1584, his assassination would send a wave of alarm throughout the Protestant world as it seemed monarchs were now fair game for political and religious assassination as long as they were Protestant. And this must have finally caught the attention of master fence-sitter Elizabeth I. She not only became increasingly paranoid of Catholic assassins lurking in the shadows, and she wasn't entirely wrong as there were indeed numerous Catholic plots instigated and found throughout her reign, But politically, she also feared that if the Netherlands fell completely to Spanish rule, then England would be surrounded by Catholic ports and could easily be attacked from multiple sides, leaving her small country extremely vulnerable and open to being overwhelmed by a Spanish naval assault. Exactly what the Warhawks had been warning about. So it was now in England's direct interest to help the beleaguered Dutch in their war of emancipation. While English merchant ships were seized in Spanish harbors over in the Americas in 1585, in battles such as the one occurring at San Juan de Ulua, the English Privy Council immediately authorized a campaign against Spanish fishing industry in Newfoundland and off the Great Banks of... When English merchant ships were seized in Spanish harbors over in the Americas in 1585, the English Privy Council immediately authorized a campaign against Spanish fishing industry in Newfoundland and off the Grand Banks in response. These campaigns would welcome the English to their first sustained military activities in the Americas, eventually leading to the establishment of colonies along the eastern shores, such as Jamestown in 1607. But everything would be thrown towards a rather large fan when one of Queen Elizabeth's favorite pro-war suitors in court, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, led a contingency of men across the English Channel in 1585, unofficially kicking off the First Anglo-Saxon War. And I say unofficially since the war was never actually declared as a war. However, historians mark this moment as the start of the many proxy wars fought between the two powers across the many naval engagements to occur. At long last, Charles V's son, Philip II in Spain, and Henry VIII's daughter, Elizabeth I in England, had finally found the time in their busy schedules to accomplish what their fathers had failed and gotten the two historic dynasties, the Habsburgs and the Tudors, to finally stand across one another poised for war. But I know what you all must be thinking. How can these two powers fight without declaring war against one another? Well, in a concept slightly foreign to our modern notions of warfare, this privateering in the Atlantic was actually semi-legal. Due to the practice of Letters of Mark, also known as letters of reprisal. Encyclopedia.com states the following regarding the term, quote, Letters of Mark and reprisal are commissions that governments of belligerent powers guaranteed to private ship owners, called privateers, authorizing them to seize the vessels and property of the enemy subjects on the high seas, end quote. Meanwhile, the Oxford English Dictionary mentions its first recorded use. Quote, Letters of Mark and Reprisal was in an English statute in 1354 during the reign of King Edward III. The phrase referred to a license granted by a sovereign to a subject authorizing him to make reprisal on the subjects of a hostile state for injuries alleged to have been done to him by the enemy's army. End quote. This would explain why one origin for the word comes from an Old English, Merk. Itself stemming from the Germanic root mark, referring to a boundary or boundary marker, and the Proto Indo European root word of merge, meaning border or territorial boundary line. Another explanation exists in the French mark, coming from an old root language of French called Provençal, where the word marca and marcar all mean to seize as a pledge. It was essentially a license to steal, in order to get some reprisal against an enemy nation, and all appears to be pretty standard stuff to late medieval and early colonial warfare. Much of the naval operations that went on during the Revolutionary War would be permitted under these same letters, so they are a fairly important feature of the legal and naval landscape. These letters were granted not to official state vessels or naval fleets, but the totally private and independent entities that essentially converted said private merchant vessels into a naval auxiliary. And with this thin veil of separation, the vessels could operate without dragging the whole of a kingdom into war. Thus, the English could defend their actions by claiming that the English Navy had performed no aggression towards Spain, while Spain could do little else but shake its fist at England from across the Channel having no legal grounds to declare full-out war without international reprisals. Nor could it easily seek aid from its Catholic allies for a full-on invasion, as Philip no doubt dreamed of doing. Since nobody on the continent trusted each other and dared not commit a large force outside of their borders for fear that a neighbor might pounce, Philip had to issue his own letters of reprisal, and the race was on to outbleed the other side of its expensive ships and precious cargo. All the while, Philip ceaselessly urged a Catholic embargo on English goods on the continent, while the Dutch fought like hell for their freedom in the lowlands, with English aid vitally flowing across the Channel to bolster their cause, despite the Spanish embargo. Things reached a historical fever pitch in 1588, when the famous Spanish Armada, largest fleet the world had yet seen, was unleashed in all its Catholic fury against puny England, where the Protestant-aligned Queen Elizabeth, a female monarch surrounded by male peers, is said to have uttered her famous speech about possessing the stomach of a king. A line most historians agree she might have not actually said, but is still included in every single piece of media made about this famous ruler's life. Despite the might of Spain, puny England not only survived the Spanish Armada, but in fact sent most of it to settle at the bottom of the English Channel, due in part to the bravery of English sailors such as Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, but mostly thanks to the unpredictable and erratic nature of the English waters and weather. The utter failure of this ill-timed attack not only put into question Philip's nickname of Philip the Prudent, but also began to show the cracks in the perceived invincibility of the Spanish Navy. I mean, who would be scared of a navy that couldn't even beat tiny England with a much larger force? Questions were raised across Europe, and the rumors of Spanish weakness began to be taken more seriously. But what does this all mean for Mexico? Well, the Spanish Armada would be the closest Spain and England came to actually trading blows in the European theater, with both nations wary of an all-out engagement between the two. And Elizabeth I, despite supporting the cause, never went all the way with the Netherlands and accepted their offer of becoming their queen. She didn't exactly want to upset the delicate continental balance and make all the other Catholic nations turn on her encroachment of power, but rather positioned England in the best geopolitical position she could, and that position was firmly planted against her half-sister's ex-husband Philip and his Catholic armies. She instead opted to support the lowland war effort through more clandestine efforts by providing supplies, officers with military strategies and training to share, and most impactful for Mexico, disrupting Spanish trade as much as possible. This was not to say that the English didn't seem to enjoy provoking the very passionate and heated responses from Philip II, who would make grand declarations, denouncing their actions and railed nonstop about their heretical crimes, and honestly, he sounds like the kind of person you just enjoy watching get mad. So long as you weren't within reach of his holy inquisition, of course. But Sir Francis Drake gives us a feeling of the English mood towards the situation when he makes the assertion that English privateers live to singe the beard of the King of Spain. Now, with this fresh failure of the Spanish Armada in 1588 and a significant increase in the letters of reprisal issued by England, the Spanish King's beard appears to be very well and cruelly singed. But beyond his royal pride, this defeat and its fallout resulted in some of the worst years if you were a Spanish convoy captain, but some of the most prosperous if you were an English, French, or Dutch privateer. And dozens of famous naval captains would make their fortunes and legends during these years, including some members of the royal court, such as the aforementioned Sir Francis Drake, as well as Sir Walter Raleigh and the Duke of Cumberland, to name a few. This infused the previously feeble naval ranks with some noble blood, and more importantly, proper financing, for the first time in English history. And the English armada and eventual navy that would come to dominate most of the known world in the coming centuries began to stretch its newly invested sea legs. Privateers would not only continue to plunder up and down the coastlines of Catholic nations in Europe, but open season was basically declared on the colonies of the Spanish Main, ripe for the taking by aspiring and entrepreneurially gifted nobles and captains. While some nobles personally led expeditions such as Hawkins and Drake, some opted to finance braver, younger, and stupider men to make the voyage. One such financier was John Watts, a successful London merchant who financed by far the most successful English privateer during these years, who embarked on several missions of glory and riches, the hero of Virginia, Christopher Newport, or as the Spanish who came to be terrorized called him, Cristóbal Neoporta. El Pirata de un Brazo, or The One-Armed Pirate. Born in December 1561 to a shipmaster working in the seaport town of Harwich in Essex, England, young Christopher was destined for the sea from birth, making his first sea voyage in 1580 at the age of 19 and quickly attained the rank of Master Mariner, engaging in trade entering the metropolis of London. Once war broke out in 85, Newport was soon found raiding Spanish cargo ships off the Caribbean islands by 1587, and in 1590 he would participate in a pair of famous expeditions known as Watts's West Indies and Virginia Expedition, hunting along the islands off the coasts of Santo Domingo, Jamaica, and Cuba for vulnerable Spanish prey. His ability to lead men was said to be legendary, earning the rank of captain at the age of 25 far earlier than most preferring to forego the typical means of punishment of the time and opted for persuasion and eloquence rather than whippings or hangings at sea. He treated Indians with respect and preferred to trade with them, and this extended to his activities in the United States, for Newport would also be incredibly important to the English colony of Virginia and the town of Jamestown specifically, where he transported some of its first colonists and is still remembered along with Captain John Smith of Pocahontas fame as one of the founders of this historic city. Educated but common-born enough to connect with his men, he famously gave stirring speeches to motivate them before facing particularly difficult targets. In 1592, when facing down a much larger Portuguese carrack, he turned to his men and is reported as saying, quote, Mastas. Now the time has come that either we must end our days or take the said carrick. End quote. The men were stirred by the statement and successfully defeated the crew and held the ship after a long, bloody affair, then picked the vessel clean before disappearing into the horizon. Newport's notoriety and fame swelled when he captained a ship, the Little John, off the coast of the island of Cuba. The English sighted two isolated Spanish galleons, which they engaged. And the Spaniards positioned their two ships, the 150-ton Nuestra Señora del Rosario and the 60-ton Pinac, Nuestra Señora de la Victoria, side by side, further lashing them together. After engaging in a long-range artillery exchange, which the English won, the Victoria was severely damaged and the English closed in to finish their prey off. Furious hand-to-hand combat ensued, which saw Newport kill the Spanish captain but pay for it with his right arm, hacked off by a Spanish mariner, avenging the captain he failed to protect. Newport's arm, however, had its own avenger. And who was this avenger? Why, the ship's sergeant of arms, of course, who accomplished what his counterpart had failed and saved his captain's life by killing the disarmingly deadly Spanish assailant. This event is relayed personally by John White, the governor of the newly established colony of Roanoke, Virginia, Who accompanied Newport on this voyage and described the following in which fight our vice-admiral lieutenant was slain and the captain's right arm was stricken off with four of his men slain and 16 hurt but in the end he entered and took one of the Spanish ships which was so sore shot by us under water that before they could take out her treasure she sunk so that we lost 13 pipes of silver which sunk with her besides much other rich merchandise Meanwhile, the second ship, Nuestra Señora del Rosario, was suffering from nine cannon holes in its own hull and sinking, but its Spanish crew managed to ground her in Cuba, escaping to shore and leaving behind its cargo of hides and indigo. Things looked to be getting even better for the victorious Little John and its crew when a pair of Spanish ships was spotted in the horizon and thought to be more treasure boats but in fact turned out to be fully armed gunboats, specifically looking for English privateers, such as the Little John and its crew. The Little John managed to outrun its pursuers, but the Nuestra Señora del Rosario remained grounded on Cuba, with Newport's crew earning little for an encounter they had paid for with five men and one right arm. But that was the risk one took for the life of adventure on the high seas and this is just a taste of the kind of warfare experienced almost daily by sailors and occasionally the inhabitants of this colonial frontier, and only those who possessed the right kind of metal would survive in these harsh conditions. Newport proved to be made of such stuff, when in spite of suffering the kind of injury that would end most people's careers, he instead just kept on plundering and made some very successful raids off the shores of Cuba, Hispaniola, and Jamaica immediately after losing his arm. However, Newport's showstopper would be the capture of the Portuguese treasure ship, the Madre de Deus, which he absconded with while captaining his ship, the Golden Dragon, off the coast of the Azores in 1592, same year of his arm loss. The massive ship took several smaller, privateering vessels to take down. In a scene I can't help but envisioning looking like a bunch of T-47s from the rebellion pulling down a wealthy Imperial AT-AT. But eventually, a combined five ships, after hours of fighting, managed to subdue and obtain the biggest profit of any single English raid during the war, including 500 tons of spices, silks, gemstones, and other immeasurably valuable treasures, all bound for the Portuguese treasury. Captain Newport became an overnight celebrity in England. His fame, once limited to the naval community, was now recognized throughout the kingdom and he became an instrumental agent throughout the rest of the Anglo-Spanish War, joining Drake in a famous raid on Cadiz and directly participating in the blockade of western Cuba, hailed as the most successful financial and military operation of the entire conflict. I could write an entire episode on Newport, and I certainly may in the future, since his contribution to Virginia and journeys to the Spice Islands of Java would make a lovely story. But if you can't wait for the podcast, I would highly recommend the book Captain Christopher Newport, Admiral of Virginia, by Nicholas A. Bryant, which goes into great detail on the life of this fascinating figure and his impact on the English colonial world, and was instrumental in the writing of this section. We will go on with our tale, but Captain Newport of the One Arm will definitely pop back up in our narrative before we're through. The cousins and successful privateers, John Hawkins and Sir Francis Drake, would signal the beginning of the end for a generation as they died in 1595 and 96 respectively after failed missions against the spanish in puerto rico for hawkins and panama for drake their impacts on the war front are clear but drake's legacy would come to far outshine that of this war and his cousin likely due to his circumnavigational accomplishments and all-around more appealing life story i mean the guy was freaking knighted so you know definitely seems like he earned the bigger historical legacy. But Newport would keep the fight going after this changing of the guard, and in 1596, Dr. Diogenes informs us that the English menace took over the island of Tris full-time, increasing the number of raids in the last few years of the conflict. Nevertheless, these raids would give our next Tabascan alcalde mayor an absolute migraine of a tenure, as next hapless provincial mayor of Tabasco. So, let's introduce our poor new contestant, Alcalde Mayor, Lázaro Suárez de Córdoba, of whom we know quite literally nothing. I'm serious, I couldn't find a single birth year or birthplace for this guy at all, but given his expensive sounding name, we can assume he was born somewhere in Spain. What we know for certain is he inherited his position at a very, very unlucky time. His predecessor, Juan Ruiz de Aguirre, had finally been ousted from the position likely due to the overabundance of complaints against him, leaving Tabasco-Mérida relations in a pretty sorry state. Suspecting his predecessor's guilt, Cordova immediately put his new royal treasurer of the province on the task of performing an audit of the provincial finances. Despite Aguirre's vehement denial of any financial naughtiness, wouldn't you know it, the treasury was down to a scant 8,600 pesos left in its coffers, leaving the whole place practically broke. Cordova got to work doing his best to fix things up, but seems to have focused on building up the community at San Juan Bautista rather than fixing La Victoria. But why did he finally listen to the suggestion of moving capitals originally made 40 years earlier? Well, he seems to have finally convinced his superiors on the complete indefensibility of the coastal capital, when in 1597 the English returned from plundering Central American colonies to harass the Gulf colonies once again from their stronghold on the island of Tris and engaged in a new campaign of reprisals. According to Diogenes, in 1597, the English privateers attacked Campeche and in September nearly razed it to the ground, only interrupted in their destruction by Spanish troops arriving from Mérida, after which they dropped all their booty off at the island of Tris, refueled, and kept sailing west to then attack Santa Maria de la Victoria managing to fully destroy it and raise it to the ground for the first time in its history. The coastal towns of Atasta and Tamulte de la Barranca were next to be wiped off the map by English attacks, with the communities unable to mount any kind of defense, opting instead to flee and move into the vicinity of San Juan Bautista on January 20th and September 18th, 1598 respectively. The super unlucky Mayor Cordoba seems to have anticipated these events and was already busy building up the growing community along the Rijalva for the elevation to provincial capital he expected would come any day now. That same year of 1597, the aging King Philip II authorized the habitation of the Villa of San Juan Bautista, formerly known as Villa Carmona, which now required an official name change after the disgraced Dr. Quijeda had been, well, you know, disgraced. So, the following year, on the 24th of July, 1598, Philip II, whose only knowledge on the city likely came from what he had read in the flattering description sent to him by Quijeda, and so he bestowed upon the new city the title of beautiful village, officially naming it Villa Hermosa de San Juan Bautista, and honoring it with the royal coat of arms. This coat of arms I went into very thorough description of in episode 3, Emerald of the Southeast. And it came with the royal promise to the pirates that this place was now considered really super important, okay? So you better think twice before coming and attacking it, tough guys. We shall see how effective this warning was, or if it just painted an expensive-looking target on the prospective capital's back. Time will tell. Beyond the symbolic gesture, more tangible efforts were also made beginning in 1596, when unlucky mayor Lázaro Suárez de Córdoba, ordered the construction of a stronghouse or royal warehouse in order to defend the population and safeguard the royal treasure. This royal warehouse was located between the modern streets of Juarez, Reforma, Madero, and Lerdo and built, like most of the buildings once found in the main square, out of wood and guano, a.k.a. bat droppings, which proved the two most abundant building materials of the day. This royal warehouse is described in some detail by Dr. Diogenes, so I'll let him take over directly. Quote, This building was solid and extensive, occupying a large part of the old Calle de Comercio, now Calle Juarez, with its extensive corrals and warehouses. They had turrets, battlements, and their signal bell. The facade overlooked Comercio Street, and the warehouses and corrals towards the Grijalva Ravine, to the north, it bordered with the Calle del Progreso, today Calle Lerdo, and to the south with Callejón de las Aguadoras, today called Calle Reforma, And I wish I could go recommend you see this warehouse for yourself in Villahermosa today, but sadly it was put to the torch in 1711, a story we will certainly go over when we get there. During this time, the new governor of Yucatán, Don Diego Fernández de Velasco, had managed to wrangle the province of Tabasco back under his Yucatec yoke, since he argued that the administration in Tabasco was in poor condition and that the royal treasury was falling after the corrupt rule of Juan Ruiz de Aguirre. This argument convinced the Audencia to declare Tabasco back under the tax fiefdom that was the Yucatec governorship, But his takeover would also prove helpful as the Yucatan governor established a company of ships to guard the shorelines establishing what is likely the first coast guard in the Americas, all in an attempt to stave off the English problem. So, how was this English problem going? Well, depends on who you ask. For the Spanish, it wasn't going terribly well, with more than a few major losses, both economic and prideful. But if you ask the privateers engaging in the fighting in the Americas, well, business had never been better. Raiding had been going on up and down the Spanish Main since basically 1568, with many of the previously mentioned privateers looting various colonial ports and capitals in Central America and Mexico, despite Yucatan Governor De Velasco's efforts to implement an early Coast Guard. But for our purposes, we will end today with the 1599 Raid of Tabasco, also known as Newport's Second Expedition of 1599. Christopher Newport not only lost his arm in one of the most badass ways imaginable and not only engaged the most successful single score when he captured the Madre de Deus off the coast of the Azores, but in regards to this show, his biggest accomplishment was the capture and plundering, but not destruction, of the city King Philip II had just blessed with his royal protection. I mean, talk about disrespectful. Rather than ward off the attacks, the Royal Crest seems to have done nothing but launch an unavoidable signal high, high into the air, informing the English on exactly where the Royal Goodies were being moved to and stashed at. Captain Newport, the one-armed pirate, made his attack around the end of 1599, this time departing on his trusty flagship, the Neptune, accompanied by the Blessing and the Triton. Each ship a 300 to 350-ton behemoth of a vessel with plenty of room in its hull for cargo, guns, or men, giving Captain Newport some flexibility to work with as far as plunder. Financed yet again by John Watts and the London merchants, his fleet set sail from Plymouth, England, on the southwest English coast, and upon arriving to the Spanish main in late September, he caught and added two small Spanish vessels to increase his strength to five total ships. Their target was clear, the new port of Tabasco, a city recently blessed by the King of Spain called Villahermosa de San Juan Bautista. Newport arrived with his force in late October and sailed his ships up the river as far as he could in his two small boats he had forcefully borrowed from the Spanish. They stealthily docked and waded ashore a few miles from the port and quietly advanced in the early hours of the morning towards the unsuspecting community. Their approach was spotted and Córdova was alerted, but despite the raising of the alarm, San Juan Bautista was soon overrun by the English raiders. The fighting was fierce, hand-to-hand, cutlass-to-cutlass street fighting, with Córdova and the Spanish putting up a valiant defense from the new royal warehouse, built precisely for this purpose. By late afternoon, however, the result was decided. The town would be occupied as the privateers settled in for a two-week siege while the men systematically pillaged the surrounding countryside for any valuables, treasures, or resources. Fortunately for us and said countryside, this plunder of the territory was performed by Captain Newport of the single arm, meaning the civilians and natives were left relatively unharmed along with the infrastructure, no torching of the towns, farmhouses, or countrysides, and certainly no murdering of the innocents. So really, the only ones who actually took a hit were the royal administrators and treasury whose coffers were raided and the wealthy merchants whose cargo was absconded with, making Newport appear as more of a Robin Hood character than a bloodthirsty pirate seeking treasure at all costs. This also had the unintended effect of putting the untouched Villahermosa, now in a wholly unexpected advantage, over the smoldering ruin that was La Victoria only a few years prior. Yes, both had been picked clean, but this was the beginning of the end for Santa Maria de la Victoria, who would forever be playing catch-up to its beautiful rival from this point on, a game it would ultimately lose when the next wave of pirate attacks inevitably came. Of course, poor, unfortunate Mayor Córdoba's career would take the biggest hit of all, and he was not long for the post after overseeing the complete destruction of La Victoria, and now the complete plunder of Villahermosa de San Juan Bautista and its surrounding area. All in all, the total score of Newport's 1599 raid on Tabasco would consist of 888 ounces of silver plates, some 220 pounds in cash, 41 ounces of gold and pearls, hundreds of cow hides, and just to really stick it to the religious nuts back in Madrid and Rome, all the church bells from the surrounding Catholic steeples. Now that last one might have really stung King Philip II as some salt in the most recent English wound to his pride. That, of course, being his newly blessed town getting the old sacking. Yes, it certainly would have stung something fierce had Philip II been around to receive the news. In spring of 1599, the news had arrived in Tabasco that on September 13, 1598, Philip II of the Habsburgs, Philip the Prudent, King of Spain, Portugal, Naples, and Sicily, the once King Consort of England and Ireland, Duke of Milan, and Lord of the Seventeen Provinces of the Netherlands, ardent defender of the Catholic faith, had died in his magnificent estate of El Escoral, the palace outside of Madrid whose construction had levied the very taxes that would push the Dutch into revolt and plunge Spain into a costly series of proxy wars that stretched its armies thin and its resources low. Ultimately, this would be Philip the Prudent's legacy, that of the staunch and incorrigible defender of Catholicism who likely made just as many problems for himself and his kingdom as he did for the various Protestant nations he deeply disliked, putting in jeopardy the considerable efforts his father had made to keep Spain in a strong and wealthy position among the European powers. By the 17th and 18th century, Spain would be a shadow of its former self, and the other European nations will kick around the once-mighty defenders of the faith, allowing the once-mighty empire's ardent colonial children in the Americas ample opportunities to sample a taste of freedom and dream of their forthcoming independence. Was Philip a good king? Did he govern well? These questions fill pages and chapters in academic journals and history books, but it appears by Philip's own admission that despite ruling over the most economically prosperous times in Spanish history, It would also undoubtedly be one of the most immoral, bloody, and heretical periods in human history, which is ironic since Philip prioritized his and his empire's piety and godliness above all. He is remembered as having said, quote, Before suffering the slightest damage to religion in the service of God, I would lose all of my estates and a hundred lives if I had them, because I do not wish nor do I desire to be the ruler of heretics. End quote. You, like me, can imagine just how red in the face old Philip might have gotten had he learned of how a one-armed Protestant Englishman of common birth had squatted in his blessed, beautiful village of San Juan Bautista for two weeks and cheekily stolen all of the church bells in the area to boot. Perhaps death was a mercy for the defender of Christ, or perhaps it was too light a punishment for the hundreds of thousands of lives that were ruined and perished under his and his empire's religious zeal. Again, questions for smarter men in brilliant academic papers. But in the end, his son, the Prince of Asturias, would be elevated to the newly vacated Spanish throne and be crowned as King Philip III, fully expected to keep up the Catholic fight against heresy and blasphemy everywhere. Royal obsequies would be observed for the deceased king, with memorial services and observations held among the partially reconstructed ruins of La Victoria, the intact city of San Juan Bautista, and throughout the territory of Tabasco, as well as the whole of Nueva España, when the king's passing was celebrated, I mean, shown the utmost respect and proper grieving. After the adequate mourning period was observed, banners were raised proclaiming the new king, and the oaths of submission and fidelity were sworn to the new Philip by the various royal and local administrators and clergy. After this fresh attack, Dr. Diogenes relates that on May 24, 1600, it was declared by royal decree that if a governor or alcalde mayor of a territory or province died or was captured, the alcaldes ordinarios could govern temporarily in their respective districts. This was done in clear response to the close call Mayor Lázaro Suárez de Córdoba had just survived, holding up in the royal warehouse with his soldiers for as long as he could, before bravely relinquishing the town and its plunder to Newport and his men, who had the run of the region. Everyone was lucky it was the rather peaceful Newport the One-armed that had attacked Tabasco, and not one of his more violent brethren, for had the pirate attacks managed to cut off the head of the Spanish colonial snake, then the rest of the colonial body would have had no clear way to select a new leader, which could lead to more chaos. But now there existed a legal framework through which it could continue to operate autonomously, which is an ominous asterisk in the job description of future administrators, to say the least. But now that Philip II was dead, buried, and mourned, and the virgin Queen Elizabeth I was nearing the end of her own reign, dying without a direct heir in 1603, leaving the crown to her distant cousin James I, the Anglo-Spanish War itself began to wind down as well. In these last few years of the war, there would be some major events, such as the Duke of Cumberland's capturing of the city of San Juan, Puerto Rico, for the English in 1598, Captain Newport doing his rather chill raid of Tabasco in 1599, William Parker would gut Portobello, Panama for all its treasure in 1601, Christopher Cleave struck Santiago de Cuba in 1603, While Captain Christopher Newport the one-armed, perhaps the most successful of all the privateers to operate in this time in both win-loss ratio and sheer quantity of wealth attained, had to of course execute the last successful English raid of the conflict that made him rich and famous when he led a final land expedition to sack the Honduran city of Puerto Caballos in 1603. However, days before the signing of the peace treaty in August 1604, A Spanish admiral would have the last laugh when he captured an English privateer in the Gulf of Cadiz. But all sorts of engagements and raids were to cease when Philip III and James I, by now the third generation of rulers to deal with this little inter-European disagreement, signed the Treaty of London in 1604, marking to historians the end of both the Anglo-Spanish War of 1585 and the Spanish naval domination of the Atlantic Hemisphere. All in all, the Spanish were bled for approximately 100,000 to 200,000 pounds a year for every year of the war, which comes out to between 1.9 to 3.8 million pounds over 19 years of conflict, and that's in 16th century money. No one can deny that that is a lot of doubloons, yet still only a fraction of the total money Spain raked in during the same time period throughout all of their colonies in the Americas, a single digit fraction most likely an indication of just how much money the Spanish Empire would pump out of the Americas throughout its occupation. But the English certainly made them pay for it with nearly 1,000 captured ship by war's end, with the letters of reprisal strategy proving immensely profitable to some of the English privateers that fought under its banner. The best example being Christopher Newport, who, despite losing an arm to the engagement, managed to earn a small fortune and well-earned place in the history books as an explorer and adventurer. He would go on to enjoy a life of fame as a bona fide celebrity in Virginia and the British colonies in North America, and participated in several adventures across the globe for the rest of his days, and in my opinion, he stands as one of the most unique and fascinating figures of the whole time period. But by far one of the most interesting impacts of the war was the tarnished reputation of Spanish dominion of the seas, along with the threat it emphasized for prospective investors in Spanish trade. Not only would Iberian naval power lose the air of invincibility it enjoyed before the failed armada of 1588, but the war itself and global rise in privateer activities meant many Spanish and Portuguese merchants were thoroughly discouraged from putting out to sea and so their abandoned shipping contracts and markets would be picked up by an ascendant English and Dutch merchant navy, itself creating competition that booted the Spanish and Portuguese out of the dominant spot shaking up and reshuffling the global naval power dynamics in the process, setting up England's eventual overtaking of all other European powers. So what does this all mean for Tabasco? The unlucky Alcalde Mayor, Lázaro Suárez de Córdoba, despite having survived his brush with death in 1599 and not suffering any more major raids that we know of, would unfortunately not get to enjoy his final years in office and instead got caught up in a developing dispute in the Yucatan between its bishop and new governor i won't bother with the names as it really isn't all that important at the moment but basically the bishop wanted to establish a separate audencia in Yucatan headquartered in Merida with jurisdiction over Campeche and Tabasco but the governor opposed this proposal and his opinion eventually won out leaving them all remaining under the leaving them all remaining under the audencia de mexico Cordova would finally put his troubled tenure over Tabasco out of its misery in the same year the war was over, perhaps retiring now that he had seen his colony through the conflict. But of course, that's wishful thinking, since the war was never officially declared in the first place, so it's more likely that Cordova was either fired for incompetence or quit out of exhaustion, never fully sitting comfortably in his rule of the region for more than a few months. The fact that we don't even get a recorded birthday or town of origin on the guy is telling enough of his legacy, but either way, Córdoba was out in 1604, having done little to stop the pirate attacks and, in fact, oversaw some of the most destructive years of activity, minus Captain Newport of the One-Arm, of course. He would also oversee the beginning of the end of the historic Santa Maria de la Victoria, and these pirate attacks go hand in hand with the eventual abandonment of the coastal capital in favor of Villahermosa de San Juan Bautista, which was originally founded by 20 Spanish refugees and their native laborers. Which was originally founded by 20 Spanish refugees and their native laborers in direct response to the very pirate raids that officially began in 1557. The history of these pirates is tied up in the colonization of the Spanish Main, the history of the transatlantic triangle and the diffusion of culture between the Americas and Europe that led to the development of the go- that led to the development of the globalized world we live in today. I hope throughout this series and future series I can flush out some of the more highly intriguing figures of this piratical history, and the whole age of exploration in general, as it also begins to touch on another podcast I hope to one day make, The Histories of the United States, as many English colonies begin during this time, and are equally affected by the events going on in Europe. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Christopher Newport, the One-Armed, will be making many appearances in that show. Despite the end of the war, the cat was out of the bag for... Despite the end of the war and treaty with England, the cat was out of the bag as far as the profitability of plundering Spanish treasure ships, and Protestant Dutch and French privateers would soon take over where the Protestant English ones had left off who of course would still be around doing their thing. But eventually, it would not be out of the ordinary to see English treasure fleets leaving their English colonies being hunted by Spanish pirates, or English and Spanish boats being harassed by locally bred American and Caribbean pirates, who began springing up in the mid and late 17th century during another age of warfare between the great European powers that played out an ocean away but led to another golden age of piracy. Throughout this time period, we will see one stronghold mentioned time and time again, the island of Carmen, also known as the island of Tris, the same island where Malitzin of Chicalango would come from before she was sent to Potonchan and met Cortez. From this island launching pad, the pirates would have their way with the surrounding communities, while the European governments back across the ocean scrambled to provide any real form of control and protection for their defenseless colonies. Thus, we will see the pirate influence persist throughout the 17th and 18th century, but those will all be stories for another time, and I think this is as good a place as any to leave it. Today, we can say that the most important takeaways would be the banquet of crimes, questionable or otherwise, presented to us by the various leaders who passed through the Tabascan territory in the latter half of the 16th century. Men like Corregidor Quijeda, representing the royal administration's crimes, Alcalde Mayor Aguirre and the local colonial crimes, Bishop Landa and his Inquisition highlight the religious crimes, and Captain Christopher Newport representing the various privateers slash pirates who came to either legally or illegally plunder the Spanish main. Each afford us a nice way to understand Tabascan politics and history as it progressed throughout this tumultuous time. And I say questionable in that their actions certainly raise an eyebrow or two towards the underlying moral character of these men, Quijeda supporting Landa against the natives, Aguirre leaving the treasury practically broke, and Newport, though benevolent, did murder and pillage, so these crimes are all questionable. But they are also questionable in that some of their accusations and accusants are dubious at best. Quijeda's 106 crimes were clearly the result of a smear campaign, while Aguirre was tied up in his own personal feud with a powerful man, making his own accusations equally eyebrow-narrowing. Most dubious of all would be Newport and the other privateers operating the Greater Caribbean during this time, despite being named criminals and brigands by their Spanish victims and the Treaty of Tordesillas. As we have seen, they would actually be working under the controversial letters of marque or reprisal. Questionable, yes, but legal, nonetheless. But let's do our best to parse through this dense mess of a time period to pull out the main brushstrokes of historical importance. There are the two dates in particular that are most important to remember and take away those of 1557 and 1599, the first sacking of La Victoria and the first sacking of Villahermosa de San Juan Bautista. We also went through a few alcaldes mayores, starting with Alonso Gomez Sotomayor who oversaw the brief but busy reign of the controversial and royally appointed Yucatec governor, Dr. Diego de Quijeda, who not only officially founded the Villa Carmona, but was accused of crimes by the local Merida Cabildo that balked at his attempts to ease the exploitation of the natives, resulting in a strain between royal and local administrative agents. This likely distracted said administrators from their main directive of protecting their colonial communities and so the coming conflict with Protestant European powers would catch them all off guard, starting with a trade war from 1568 to 1574 involving privately owned vessels overtaking Spanish treasure trade galleons and raiding them for their cargo. In 1579, Vasco Rodriguez would commission the first official census and map of Tabasco, with the map completed by the mysterious and pretty anti-native Melchor Alfarez de Santa Cruz. Rodríguez, the censor, would be replaced by Juan Ruiz de Aguirre, who would be too busy embroiled in a personal dispute with Yucatán governor Francisco de Solís Osorio to offer much resistance to the pesky pirating going on. Then, during his warming of the mayor's chair, he pulled a Quijeda and provoked an argument with the Yucatán elite, this time after he full-on broke Tabasco away from the tax fiefdom controlled and exploited by the governor of Mérida and its cabildo giving us an amazing opportunity to learn about the ever-fascinating history of colonial taxes, all while the Anglo-Spanish War kicked off in earnest, causing considerable damage to the Spanish main economy and its coastal communities. Mayor Juan Ruiz de Aguirre, the secessionist, would ineffectually rule until 1596, when the highly unlucky Lázaro Suárez de Córdoba would inherit the worst of it and oversee the full destruction of numerous communities and town throughout his territory, including the 1597 destruction of La Victoria and the much less destructive but equally economically devastating raid on Tabasco of 1599, where Christopher Newport, one of the most successful privateers of this era, came and left his mark on the history of the Mexican Gulf state by committing numerous acts of bravery and celebrated patriotic service, according to the English, or countless criminal acts of vile piracy and brutal violence, according to the Spanish. All of which brings us to the death of Philip II in 1599, then Elizabeth I in 1603, and the eventual end of the Anglo-Spanish War in 1604, which saw England descend on the global stage to the considerable detriment of the Spanish Empire, as its seemingly unimpeachable luster began to fade along with their once invincible-looking might. And so the conflict between these two rulers and the privateers and royal administrators that duped it out on their behalf Those would be the major takeaways from the episode, along with the years of 1557 and 1599. Next time, we will see if a new King Philip III of Spain and a new treaty with England deters the piracy. We will see if the new Alcalde Mayor, Juan de Miranda, can stop the constant attacks on his vulnerable capital of La Victoria. And we will count just how long Villahermosa lasts as a new capital. And spoiler alert for all of those questions, it won't. He won't, and not for very long. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias, y que viva bien. Adiós, and goodbye for now.